0: good morning Harry Stephen we're, we're, we're live here so at the minute and and we've, we've got a quorum so we have and uh, um, if you have any problems with the starleaf sure let us know and uh, so uh, you can mute the microphones until it's time to speak uh, because background noises will be heard and if you have any um, questions let me know using the whatsapp facility here um, okay the, the meeting will be recorded and broadcast throughout Parliament buildings, and online, and you're welcome to use the mobile devices so long as they're uh, muted or in airplane mode. The uh, apologies. um, I think Harry, Harry may have sent an apology to say that he will be running late. Yeah, Harry. Harry is the only one who sent an apologies. Uh, Chairperson's business. I don't have any. And draft minutes. uh, The draft minutes are from meeting on the 23rd of April, 23rd of June. As uh, at page six. Are members okay with the minutes for me to sign them off? Yeah. Okay. Uh, matters arising. Uh, written briefing. Um uh, environment bill, sub, sub, sub supplementary legislative consent. Uh, I want to refer members to the written briefing from the department in the tabled pack outlining a requirement for legislative consent in respect of two specific provisions in the environment bill on devolved matters. The has previously reported on the Legislative Consent Memorandum relating to the Environment Bill and further consent is being sought in two specific provisions that are largely technical in nature and therefore are considered to be within the scope of the original legislative consent passed by the Assembly on 30 June. Two revisions are the first one an insertion within the Bill to enable DAO to issue guidance to the Office for Environmental Protection in respect of matters listed in its enforcement policy such as whether damage to the natural environment is serious whether it to comply with environmental law or service, and to avoid overlap with respect, management of complaints and other public bodies. Second thing is provision to enable DARFRA to make regulations uh, on a UK-wide basis to prohibit the use of illegally produced forest commodities such as soya, cocoa, and palm oil. Under this provision, DARFRA will be uh, obligated to consult the local executive before making any such regulation. Uh, members are asked to consider and comment on the additional provisions contained within this legislative consent memorandum in advance of it being considered by the Assembly in September. Um, do members have any um, comments or questions in relation to that one there? Um, um, I I should I should also, uh, maybe uh, maybe something I want to suggest myself is we should just um, check um, the, the, the relation of uh, culture in the South, because I'm aware of for um, forests such as a Clader Forest down in the west, for consistency which straddles right down to Donegal, so be important that that is aligned uh, across the jurisdiction So could that be? Is that okay? That's, that's right back to the department. Okay. Um, so if you have any other questions relating to that one, there, just forward forward it on to the clerk by the end of play today, please. Next item on the agenda is an oral evidence session on the climate change bill from the Ulster Farmers Union. And, uh, I want to refer members to the written briefing from the UFU at page uh, 16. And I want to welcome by Starleaf Victor Chestnut, the President, David Brown, the Deputy President and Aileen Lawson, the Senior Policy Officer. I would like to invite the representatives to brief the committee and then members will ask questions after this.
1: Good morning Declan, good morning committee members, uh, Yeah, thanks for the opportunity uh, to come in here to give evidence today on which we feel is a very important issue for Northern Plurian's agriculture sector. Um, I'll introduce my team uh, to my right hand side here, uh, I have David Brown, uh, who's from that lovely place Florence Court that you were talking about Patsy, uh, and uh, we heard that you enjoyed up and doing the, the, the Florence Court area. So. Um, that's where David's from, I'm from the north coast, right up near the Giant's Causeway. And Aileen, Aileen's our environmental uh, policy officer, she's joining from home, because unfortunately she has to isolate because of a, a school child uh, with some positive symptoms. So uh, w- we're glad to be here today. Um, so on bone uh look about our organisation, we're 11,500 people. Uh, Family memberships and, and, and the UFU and these are not just a list of people that agreed to put their name on a page. These are paid-up members, uh, so people have skin in the game. We are structured such that people are democratically elected from every area across Northern Ireland. Two committees, uh, commodity commodity committees and environment committees, that discuss and review the UFU policy. So we have a a very uh, democratic structure behind our organisation and indeed uh, behind our policies. About Northern Ireland agri-food sector, uh, and I hope you recognise the the dependence in Northern Ireland on the agri-food sector. We have 113,000 jobs, was the last figure that the NIFTA report gave us uh, on the jobs in the agri-food industry with 24,000 farmers Roughly about the half of those are about 11000 underpinning all those jobs. The, this is worth to Northern Ireland economy $5.2 billion a year. So we're not a, 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 a forgotten industry or a small industry in Northern Ireland. In fact, we're very important to the financial well-being of our little country, which we all love. Farming's on the front line of climate change impacts. We're particularly vulnerable to extreme weather events, and so we understand more than most... there is a need to address climate change. Therefore the UFU supports climate change legislation and the need to tackle emissions from agriculture, but proposals must be fair and credible, backed by relevant evidence and deliver a just transition for everyone. While Northern Ireland must reduce our impact on the climate, we should not reduce our capacity to produce high quality affordable food produced to high environmental animal health and welfare standards. Global demand for food is increasing, and according to the UN forecasts, the number of mouths to feed will rise to nearly 10 billion by 2050. The Climate Change Agreement, made setting ambitious climate change targets, also recognised the importance of safeguarding food security and ending hunger. And I would urge you to, to, to remember that that is part of, of, of what our responsibility as a nation is, The particular uh, vulnerabilities of food production systems to the adverse impact of climate change. We uh, are farming in a global environment so we need to take a global view. Agriculture production will need to increase by an estimated 60 percent according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization with strong future demand projected for commodities such as milk and meat. Northern Ireland's grass-based livestock production systems are among the lowest greenhouse gas uh, emissions in europe uh, per unit of production so and i want to repeat and force this it makes sense to produce milk and meat here rather than other areas in the world food security will become increasingly important COVID 19 clearly outlined how sensitive the food supply chain is to global shocks the climate change committee's third climate UK Climate Change Risk Assessment Evidence Report in 2021 outlined, climate change is likely to exacerbate disruptive events that impact on global agriculture production and food supply chains, including droughts, storms, pests and diseases, with increased risks of disruptions associated with multiple production areas. In light of the increasing risk to food supply chain and particularly around food imports, removing the ability to local locally produced high-quality food is irresponsible in the extreme. For example, Spain at the moment has a lot of beef systems. If the climate change, if the temperature rises, it may become too warm in northern Spain to produce the uh, Water, Water availability in many of these countries is coming under severe uh, severe severe pressure. Um, we don't have those issues here uh, uh, in Northern Ireland. The UK is only around 60% self-sufficient on a calorific basis with regard to milk, meat and eggs from domestic livestock production. There continues to be demand for milk and uh, dairy, meat and dairy products. Therefore, the UK and Northern Ireland must not achieve its climate change ambitions by exporting production and our greenhouse gas emissions to other countries, commonly known as carbon leakage. It makes no sense to import product from other countries where emissions are higher and standards are lower in order to meet climate change targets. example, the Australian uh, trade deals. Uh, importing product from Australia where the CO2 emissions per person is uh, 22 ton equivalent and Northern Ireland were at 10 ton per person equivalent. Um, for instance, JV, JBS Group, the, the, one of the largest protein producers in the world, namely uh, Brazil, um, have, have said in a statement that while they uh, target to become net zero, they also are saying that they hope to stop deforestation by 2035. And absolutely, horrendous thing to say that they'll go to cut trees for another 14 years. Northern Ireland farmers are efficient meat and dairy producers. It's also recognized that beef production in Western Europe is currently two and a half times more efficient in managing carbon emissions than the global average. Take uh, take that into account. Dairy farming in Northern Ireland has reduced its carbon intensity by 34% between 1990 and 2017, and greenhouse gas emissions from beef in the UK are 52% lower than the global average. Our soils are in good shape for organic matter, i.e. carbon. Because of our livestock density here in Northern Ireland, unlike other areas in the world where soils are becoming depleted and, and low in carbon, increasing the use of artificial fertilizer and We hear all the story, 30 harbours left and all the rest of it. That is not so in Northern Ireland because of our organic matter produced by our livestock. I will not stand back and listen to accusations that Northern Ireland farmers are lagging behind and that we're lagging in in ambition when it comes to climate change. Farmers here are proven to be doing a good job when it comes to tackling emissions. Yes, there's a lot more to be done and we're up for that challenge. We're proud to feed the nation. And we do an excellent job here in Northern Ireland. We can do better, we can learn different ways of doing things. There's always room for improvement. I'll reach over now for David to take you through and then I'll bring in Aileen and then I'll, 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 I'll summarise before we open it for questions. Thank you. Thank you folks for the opportunity. As the President has said to
2: uh, come and speak to you today. I guess uh, when we look back at the reasons for the private members bill initially, it, it was around the absence uh, of a bill being brought forward by at that time the dear minister, and um, thankfully that's no longer the case. And first of all, I want to maybe address uh, the narrative uh, that uh, the president has just alluded to around Northern Ireland being behind. Um, I suppose 82%, which the Climate Change uh, Committee came out with uh, by 2050, uh, in, in that narrative is appears to be seen as Northern Ireland doing less than the rest of the UK. But just to make a few points in relation to uh, the UK targets as the first nation in the world to bring in climate legislation in 2008. uh, We have been part of greenhouse uh, gas implementation uh, program since 2008. So that work for UFU and the industry here in Northern Ireland has been ongoing. In 2019 Theresa May's government also uh, put forward uh, the first major economy to have a net zero target in law and the UK is the only country in the world to have developed a pathway to net zero. So an 82% by 2050 here in Northern Ireland as a target is uh, an ambitious target, uh, so much so that it is asking more of our farmers and uh, asking more of this region than we are asking of the rest of the UK or indeed ROI. If I could make just a simple analogy, it has already been alluded to, the fact that I live in Florence Court in County fermanagh I'm 90 miles from our headquarters here in Belfast. So I have further to go. it takes longer and it costs more. So therefore, I think we need to, I suppose, understand in this, you know, that in reality where Northern Ireland is and what is needed of our agriculture sector is a huge, huge ask. If I were to take that analogy further, I might say that the Private Members' Bill would be the equivalent of asking everybody to live in Belfast in order to save emissions, and just let's rewind the countryside. But please do not think, when the CCC panel came out with their carbon budget back in December, talking about 46% of land in Northern Ireland being released uh, from agricultural production for 150,000 hectares of peatland, of which we have quite a bit in Northern Ireland, being rewet. In other words, uh, in order to reduce uh, carbon release from that peatland, uh, it would basically become no longer farmable. So those recommendations from the CC committee, uh, which I point out we, we did uh, come out in December of last year and say that we accepted those recommendations, uh, is, do not fundamentally misunderstand the challenge that that will be. And what it would mean for agriculture here in Northern Ireland. Just to cover off a few points I mentioned there the Greenhouse Gas Implementation Group. Uh, that uh, developed a plan in 2011 around cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the President has already referenced that 34% uh, in the dairy sector uh, and that reduction in the intensity of emissions. And that was part of four areas around nutrient management, livestock management, renewable energy. And fuel efficiency, all of those, uh, and alongside too, of course, carbon sequestration, more of which I'm sure we'll have later. But most recently, in the business development groups, uh, we've uh, begun, through those environmental groups, uh, carbon audits. It's very much topical amongst our farmers. It's very much a focus for the agricultural industry. And we're also hopeful, and you may be aware uh, of the recent rollout of a soil health scheme Uh, which will have a carbon element in it and we would trust that uh, that would be world leading in terms of identifying uh, both the status of our soils and what is needed going forward. Uh, UFU works along with the other uh, four UK unions highlighting those positive actions, involvement in COP26 coming up now uh, later in the year. There's been a huge research agenda. We're blessed in Northern Ireland to have AFBI and Queen's University at our doorstep who are to the forefront in that key research work. However, it is important to understand that the correct legislative framework is needed uh, and to allow that good work to continue. And we believe that the Private Members' Bill does not offer that. Um, The Private Members' Bill, we believe, should not have been used to bring this legislation forward because that mechanism uh, would not have been used uh, for other policy issues and proper scrutiny has not taken place. You'll be aware, obviously, from recent engagement with uh, Lord Devon, the comments he has made around uh, that in his evidence that it's not achievable, it's not scientifically possible, it's morally wrong and incompatible with the recommendations of his expert working group. And the CCC advice highlighted that even with 50% cut in livestock numbers and a substantial increase in forestry, we could still not hit net zero by 2050. I think there needs to be an understanding that biogenic methane and all of these things which are natural processes within food production uh, are not something that can be easily dismissed in the manner which might be available to other sectors. Uh, Even DEER officials have pointed to the fact uh, with their concerns that only a 0.73% reduction would be delivered by the private member's bill and that would have a massive economic impact on Northern Ireland's agriculture sector and indeed on Northern Ireland economy. Um, we as, as an industry have commissioned, and you've heard probably this referenced in the past week or so, uh, independent uh, KPMG uh, consultants to carry out work on an impact assessment and in due course that will be made available to the ERA committee. Uh, While greenhouse gases and uh, and emissions from farms can be reduced, it's important to understand that they cannot be eliminated. Cutting livestock numbers and reducing agricultural production in Northern Ireland would not solve what is a global challenge of feeding a growing population. That food, as has already been mentioned, production would be exported elsewhere. The CCC recommended an 82% reduction by 2050. I've already alluded to the fact that that is not an easy option. It is a huge challenge for us as an agricultural sector. Do not believe for one moment when I was rolled out uh, on on radio interviews back in December that that was universally welcomed by our membership. It is a huge challenge to uh, farmers and the agricultural sector. Northern Ireland is the only region to ignore expert advice thus far when proposing a climate change target. And when you have experts such as the internationally renowned CCC clearly spelling out their concerns about the 2045 target with no credible counter arguments that we've seen or heard being put forward of how, how would that uh, i suppose engage or instill confidence into the farming community and our members as the president has said has clearly indicated uh, they have no confidence in that recommendation and those who are supporting it and that is the
1: challenge that we as an organisation have ahead of us. Thanks David. I'll bring in Aileen now for some additional points.
3: Uh, Thank thank you President and good morning um, committee and thank you for the invite uh, to have us along. So Victor and David have set out some of the key issues for us but I'd like to add on some additional points. Um, There are many other aspects uh, to the bill Um, that we feel there's a lack of information on, and that makes it difficult for us to provide you with detailed comments, such as the environmental targets, uh, the additional environmental targets um, on on water quality and so forth. What do they mean? How do they link in with existing legislation? How does that work? How do the reporting requirements um, tie up with each other? Uh, We don't know anything about that. what that means. They also, the carbon use of trackage scheme. Again, there's very little information within the papers presented to date that uh, would give us um, sort of confidence to, re- to report and give you um, further assessment of what we think that, that that could mean. Another point to make is there's a, a the lack of accountability of the proposed climate change commissioner is very concerning and the powers that they will have to obtain documents and information seem excessive and we believe should be removed uh, from, from this bill. Another point um, just to add in is that we believe that a Just Transition Commission should be established with powers to ensure there's no negative impacts um, on specific sectors or, or communities. This has been successful in Scotland, um, and our colleagues in NFU Scotland have positive reports about the Commission's work there. Farmers and rural communities should not carry the burden of climate action, and at the minute the private members bill will result in significant consequences for rural communities and farming families, and we do not believe that it will deliver a just transition. Last week, you heard from industry representatives um, with uh, particular issues around methane and how that should be measured, including the use of GWP star. This needs to be carefully considered and understood as part of your process. And we would encourage you to bring in the experts um, to discuss this issue. New Zealand have gone down the route of having a separate target for biogenic methane. And there's also been discussions around this in the South. Though it may be appropriate here too, given the similarities in our economies. It's also vital that the committee understands the different differences between various accounting methods for greenhouse gas emissions. Within the national inventory that is used in the legislative targets, agriculture is measured on its growth emissions. So that's the emissions from livestock, from fertilizer, and from machinery, things like that. But the role that agriculture plays in sequestering carbon is not attributed to the agriculture inventory. This goes into the land use, land use change inventory and is used to offset all of society's emissions. But also just point out that it is possible for some farms to be at net zero, but there's lots of different ways of calculating carbon on farms and doing these calculations. So, and there's various assumptions and different, uh, different methodologies can be used to do this but these are not necessarily comparable to a legislative net zero target. So you need to look at all the detail before you can link any of those things together. So we believe going forward that agriculture needs to be measured on net emissions. So we take a kind of carbon sequestration, uh, properly recognize it and accurately measure it on farms and attribute it to farmers first. And I'll just hand back to Victor now to, to sum up.
1: Thank yeah, from, That's you know. it. Thanks, Aileen, for that. Yeah. Look, I want to pick up on that point of, uh, of what Aileen said about the sequestration that happens on our farms not being attributed to our outputs or our livestock. And I'll put this in layman's terms. I'm a fairly simple guy. Uh, on my own farm, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not different to a lot of farms in Northern Ireland, during my farming career, I planted about five miles of hedges. Those hedges should be used, the sequestration of carbon in those hedges should be used to offset the emissions from my livestock. They are not for sending my, my neighbour or indeed my local MLA on two foreign holidays a year. Um, I know talking to some of you, so you, you didn't want to touch your holidays because you enjoy your holidays, but I'm sorry. I want to offset the emissions on my farm from my livestock first. If there's, if there's room left, then society can have it. But first of all, we must uh, be allowed to use the sequestration that happens on our lands with our grasslands and indeed our hedges to offset the emissions from our livestock. It's just completely crazy in my, my, my books to uh, consider that as, as something else. We're the only sector that can work on both sides of the balance of this. Yes, our livestock uh, breathe out and, and, and create methane, which has broke down in the atmosphere over 12 years. So the argument is that if there's no, uh, up, no increase in numbers, then we are not contributing to global warming. But uh, that we're the only industry that can, not only we, we have these emissions, that we, we just, the fact of, 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 of life that they're there, but we also can sequestrate. And we can improve our sequestration on our farms. It's a, a, an ambition of mine to, uh, m- my farm was, was fairly near the coast and was very bare when I took it over. Uh, it's an ambition of mine to have a hedge around every farm. This is some of the low hanging fruit that we can do. Biodiversity is increasing on my farm. If I were to re- reduce my stoven rate down in line with this climate change bill, biodiversity on my farm would suffer. Um, Undoubtedly, Northern Ireland must in, uh, reduce our impact on the climate, but we should not uh, reduce our capacity to feed UK consumers with high-quality, affordable food produced to high environmental, animal health, and welfare standards. The UK and Northern Ireland must not achieve its climate change ambition, ambitions by exporting and production under greenhouse gas emissions to other countries. This would have an adverse effect. We would be adding to, to climate change. The UFU is strongly opposed to a forced reduction in output from the agricultural sector. Food security will become increasingly important in the years ahead and needs to be a key consideration. While this bill is a framework, it will set the policy direction. Otherwise, what is the point of having a target? Therefore, it can, cannot be looked at in isolation. Ensuring a profitable and productive agriculture sector, while reducing emissions, is a very challenge but is an an essential task. Northern Ireland agriculture, if appropriately appropriately equipped and empowered with the right tools and support, will play a key role in tackling climate change. However, this bill will not allow this to happen. This bill will have an adverse effect on a global scale and may well increase our worldwide problems of climate change. As legislators, you need to be honest, if you want a 2045 as a target then that will require radical action such as devastating livestock cuts, but radical action not just by farmers but by all of society. No one has presented any credible evidence to date to show that this drastic approach will not be needed to deliver this target. It's time to turn away from orange and green green issues. There's no such thing as an orange cow or a green cow. Take the politics out of this debate and deliver credible legislation for all of Northern Ireland that we all can have confidence and work together to deliver. This bill will have a more detrimental effect to Northern Ireland than any trade deals. Our food produced is of a high quality, high standard and grass-fed. Many areas of the world would give the right arm to have our sustainable farming systems. In fact, there was an, a, a, an American speaker over at a cereals at conference and he highlighted Northern Ireland's system of farming as being the most sustainable in the world. We've heard quips that the ROI aren't taking this approach. Our counterparts, our farmers in the south, have been outside the door with a cry, You won't be gone. The FA are on the streets. Our farmers will not be found wanting in getting the public's attention. We will not be made scapegoats for society. Net zero, 25.5, under the current funding methods, is complete nonsense. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, right here. Near- Victor, David, and Eileen, for your very detailed um, uh, presentation. Um, there's a number of members who want to ask uh, questions, but I suppose I'll, I'll um, sort of kick off here with it. Um, you made uh, reference there to the, uh, the role of the, the, com- the commissioner, um, and um, I know, the, I know the, the, the challenges before, where you have various groups that. Um, Perhaps aren't accountable, or they're like quangos, and they can, and I know the challenges that has caused, and certainly, uh, for certainly for farm development um, and applications. Uh, what what um, what way do you think that the uh, any any climate, whatever climate bill come, comes about, should be overseen or implemented? How, how do you think that she, the the department should be held account uh, for the, the climate change mitigation? And implementing any act that comes about.
1: I'm going to pass, for, I'm going to pass that from over to 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 answer that one, please.
3: Thank you, Declan. Um, well, I suppose I mean you've alluded to the fact that we would have had concerns and have shared concerns in the past about shared environmental services and the lack of what would appear to be accountability to any public representatives. So I suppose um, in terms of a climate change commissioner going forward, we would want to see some sort of uh, public accountability brought into the bill. Now, whether that's to the Assembly, uh, to the Executive or what, I think that's something you need to examine. Um, I I mean, the Climate Change Committee already does hold um, each of the devolved administrations and the Westminster government to account. So effectively, there is a degree of accountability already there. But um, certainly, it's something we would encourage you to make sure is included in the bill, given our previous experiences um, with other organisations, it's something that needs to be uh, developed further and, and tightened up uh, within this, within these proposals.
0: And I mean, just when you're when you're on the line there, yeah, I think it was yourself had mentioned oh, yeah, about the uh, the just transition commission in Scotland. Um, what, what um, what shape do you think that would take here? Or, you know, you know what what's the um in, in scotland you know what what would be your vision for it being here you know what form it would take who to be accountable to where would it be located within government for example Eileen?
4: so
3: again from what i understand within scotland it doesn't have any statutory powers at the minute but that's something that given the success that it has had is being re-examined um under this new administration in scotland but and um, from what i understand about it as it's, it's a it's an independent um organisation set up that takes various uh, uh, evidence from various groups and so forth and provides reports then to government. Um, And I think that's something that needs to be be considered here. I think what we're hearing um, from our colleagues in Scotland is that they were very clearly able to spell out their key concerns, like what we're doing today, around the impact of climate change legislation on farmers and on rural communities. Um, and that has helped ensure that those concerns, those genuine concerns, um, are 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 listened to and included, you know, in various reports before the recommendations, targets, and legislation, and so forth, are needed. Yeah.
0: and just finally, I, th- I think. Oh, the three of you has mentioned the the issue of me, methane and the the fact that New Zealand having a separate target is that something that you would think should be considered for here uh, in, in climate change legislation? We cut off, <laughs> or David, or Victor, or
3: I think it needs to be looked at, and I think it's something that we don't have any strong opinions on. I think certainly we need to look at the accounting methods, the GWP star, how that links into the inventory, um, but whether that's um, that sits whether that sits out as a separate target, whether it's a separate target for agriculture. I think all of those things need to be looked at in the round. Um, I, and, and, and it needs a lot further debate and discussion. Um, and I say what we would suggest is that you you talk to the experts in the University of Oxford for example, and, and you you look into this in a lot more detail. Um, but certainly certainly um, it needs to be considered further. And, and I think um, you know the same is happening south of the border and certainly New Zealand have, have that in their in their legislation as well.
0: Thank you Eileen.
5: Uh, I'm going to move, move around the room, Philip? Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. Uh, uh, Chair, I actually had three things written down: just transition, climate commissioner, and meeting. So, <laughs> so but anyway, <laughs> I, I think it's important to, to point out, uh, as I as I always do, declare an interest. I, I'm actually a co-sponsor of the bill, and, and one of the successes of this bill, in, in my view, th- thus far, is that it has been able to attain uh, cross-party and cross-community support. Uh, you know the Ulster Unionist Party, the Green Party, the Alliance Party, the SDLP uh, and ourselves in Sinn Féin all co sponsor the bill so I mean I, I was a wee bit disappointed because I ha- haven't heard it in relation to this issue about green and orange politics I mean I'm not sure anybody has, has brought green and orange politics into climate change one of the most important issues that any political party or any politician or legislation face so it is important that. I make that point. You know, my role as a legislator and as co-sponsor is ensuring that we get the best possible bill uh, to ensure that people and businesses and sectors in the north play their part in the most important issue facing us so that we can uh, hand on a clean, healthy a sustainable environment to our children. Uh, as I said, I had a number of issues down uh, in relation to the, some of the points. have previously been covered, in terms of, I'll not go into the Just Transition and Climate Commissioner because they have been dealt with, in terms of methane, uh, you know, I note in the CC's letter to uh, the Minister Putz on the the 1st of April, uh, you know, it said in that letter, in our balanced pathway, methane emissions in in, in the north fall by 42% from 2020 to 2050. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, what the Ulster Farmers' Union's view of that target? I mean, because you mentioned that you need a target. So the the CCC have, have suggested a target of, of 42% with regard to methane. So I'm just interested to hear the Ulster Farmers' view of that potential target. Yeah, thanks. Uh, look,
1: we have this different way of measuring it at the minute. Where we're measuring by GWP... Uh, 100 which is global warming potential and uh agriculture is seen as 28 28 on, on, on that scale um gwp star mentions the global warm, warming potential taken into account the lifetime of that gas and as i've said that while methane is a potent gas it breaks down in 12 years so in effect if we could move to that that means that unless there's an increase uh, in livestock numbers in northern ireland and it would just take this point to tackle some of the very very uh uninformed uh ideas of some of your uh, uh well sponsors and and thinking that livestock numbers have increased livestock numbers in northern ireland peaked in uh, in, in 1998 in the cattle world i'll, I'll bring david in with the figures just exactly on that david yeah, as I think we're aware of that conversation uh, around you know
2: intensification and, and I suppose those emotive words, but I mean in, in terms of uh, breeding suckler cows, and I took it from the 1990 baseline uh, off the back of the fact that that's obviously where this whole climate change discussion was. 268, almost 269,000 uh, suckler cows, beef cows, breeding cows. Uh, that is a 247,000 last year. Admittedly, dairy cows have, have increased to counterbalance that. Uh, breeding sheep, uh, 1.367 million, down to 938,000 uh, over that 30-year period. And breeding sows, obviously on the side, from uh, 78,000 down 40% to 47,500. You know, all of those, uh, and, and the other point to make, I suppose, in relation to the intensification, which seems to be uh, pointed towards the, the pigs and poultry sector, is that they are, uh, very, very small contributors uh, to the greenhouse gas emissions. let uh, me just pick up on the point around me. Then, I, I know chair that, uh, that Declan and I have made this point here in the past. I mean, we would very much wish that the committee would hear this information and have it explained firsthand because uh, while we have been on numerous webinars and so forth and, and listened to these speakers, uh, you know we explained to us the accounting methodology, um, I think it would be a benefit to the committee. Uh, to invite and we're very happy to share some of the names of the people involved in this the scientists uh, and they are the experts that you know that that have uh, uh, brought forward uh, those accounting methods which they believe are a more accurate reflection
1: of uh, how agriculture and i suppose wider uh, methane should be measured thanks for that david just to to come back to your point on, on on targets and you know how are we going to achieve this and how are we going to achieve this you know we do hope that there will be t- technologies come forward that will help us achieve this. But at the minute, they're not there yet, and that's why we're opposed to putting too many targets that we can't meet. But you know, there's a lot of work on seaweed. Uh, let's hope it bears fruit. Uh, initially, it looks encouraging. Um, you know, uh, in- Incorporating a small amount of seaweed into our, our diets, they are saying reduces methane output, by up to 85%. If it's anything close to that, there will be an industry. Develop uh, doing that, but at the minute we're early days. But we have Offpeak, which is we're leading and I repeat. We're leading in their 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 expert uh, measurement of this, measurement of methane, measurement, and uh, indeed uh, Northern Ireland is, is and I I'm not just picking a figure is we're leading in its research to to that, and we hope that there will be uh, measures that we can use within our livestock production that can. Uh, reduce this. But at the minute to base something just in the hope factor we feel it's very dangerous. But we do hope that there will be measures going. We are learning. uh, Farmers are always learning. We are learning a bit more about our soils. One of the things I see around the world is there's other areas bringing back livestock to help the carbon uh, intensity in our soils and our organic matter in the soils. And isn't it ironic here in Northern Ireland, where we're looked at by the rest of the world of having that, that we're trying to reduce it, it doesn't really make sense at all. We need to move slowly on this, um, otherwise we could get that adverse effect.
0: Okay, thanks for that. Um, thanks, Victor. Right, I'm going to move round. Jo- John, John Blair.
1: Chair, sure.
6: uh, yeah, thank you, And Apologies that I uh, lost connection there for a while, so I hope I'm not repeating anything here that may already have been covered. But they, I'll, I'll fire through a couple of things quickly, and please, as I say, correct me if someone else has asked. Uh, first thing is the carbon sequestration and the fact that we've discussed before with, with the Farmers Union, and I thank them for the presentation today, um, the issue of not all information being captured currently for the maximum benefit to, to farmers and if any progress has been made in that regard in their discussions with government um, is, is the basis of the question. And, and I think we should express here, will we'll all of us be supportive to try and achieve that go, going forward? The second question is the issue of the Climate Change Commissioner. I mean, many of us accept that the current position, despite an outstanding commitment to an independent Environmental Protection Agency, um, is that there's a situation of the the government department policing the government department and rules and regulations being implemented, and many of us find that an unsatisfactory position. So um, is the Farmers Union able to, to present an alternative to, to that Climate Change Commissioner in ensuring that that um, regulatory control will be implemented impartially?
1: Thanks, uh, so I'll bring it in on the last point and then I'll go to David there for the first part of that question. Yeah,
2: in relation to the carbon sequestration, John, I mean, it is something that we have been raising, obviously, at governmental level. Uh, but in, in reality, in terms of the government inventories uh, and the calculations they do, uh, as the President alluded earlier, neither are hedges or our grasslands or, or indeed, uh, I mean, woodland, yes, if it's new woodland being planted, is, is now being accounted uh, and in terms of those carbon audits, but in reality that, that is a battle we're fighting uh, in order to get that recognition because uh, when it comes to, for example, the comparison, uh, and I know it has been made in the past with uh, the NFU position around 2040, um, they have taken that position of 2040 off the back of saying, well, first and foremost, come back to my earlier point, uh, they have uh, not got uh, the, the level of emissions to the stuff that Northern Ireland has, but on the other side of that they are taking into account uh, what has been sequestered in that equation. We, unfortunately, are not allowed, uh, as I say, under current government inventories, uh, to, to balance that out. And, and the point uh, that the President made earlier about the hedges that he's planted uh, being allocated to the wider benefit of society is something I, I'd say, yes. I suppose, in fairness, probably seen as being unfair. Uh, to uh, the farmer uh, who has livestock uh, where those emissions are all being added, totaled and calculated and yet uh, in terms of the sequestration we want to see that calculated we want to see uh, work uh, further progress on the ability uh, to have that measurement for each of our farms but uh, at at present we have not got any uh, advancement I would have to say in terms of uh, the government to recognise that Okay, but David, yes. David, sorry to come in on that, but um, what you're saying
6: basically is the position I already hold that individual auditing of that would be beneficial to farmers who are making the greater effort, basically.
2: Well, yes, and indeed, not just to the individual farmer, but to the whole of the agricultural industry. Obviously, if mm-hmm. we have two sides of an equation. Uh, one is n- not negating entirely, but certainly reducing. Uh, you know, the, the level of emissions would be balanced against the level of sequestration, and that is currently not happening.
6: Okay, thank you for
1: that. I know the first part of that question, Joan, has been covered, but last evening, just to briefly comment on the climate change uh,
3: commission, I, I think, I mean, John, we haven't said that we're opposed to a climate change commissioner. I think what we're saying is that the level of accountability needs to be looked at carefully to make sure that there is there is accountability to to public representatives. Um, so, I mean, we've we've have no strong views on the commissioner, the role of the commissioner in itself. Okay. It's just that accountability position that we would have more concerns around. Um, yeah. Well, and and how that links in with the climate change committee—is there an overlap? You know, all of these things have to be teased out, and there's not enough information in the public domain that I'm aware of that explains that to you. So I think those are the questions maybe we need to ask of you and your supporters of the bill is to look to maybe explain that further to us. Is it what what way you envisage the climate change committee linking in with other organisations, with the likes of your own, You know, the committee itself. Who that reports to and so forth. So it's it's all of it's, it's it's all of that. It's hard to provide comment when there's not a lot of information there at the um, and also the powers. I mean, under the current bill, they have powers to to obtain information from anybody that receives public money for example that could be farmers you know what what information will the climate change committee be able to get are you you know is the climate change commissioner really coming on to a farm and demanding records for example again we would like to see clarification um, around that and and I, I i haven't been able to find that within any text that's available at the minute
6: okay so you're looking at clarification on the structures around the commissioner but not necessarily opposed to the idea of a commission
7: Yes,
0: absolutely. Okay, thank you for
7: that. You. Um, just on there now. Um Patsy, good, good to see everybody. Um and thank you for coming along and, and giving us your valuable uh, time and help there. Um now just one of the things leading on from what Aileen were exploring this issue of the Commissioner. Um mm. Do you see that in terms of the accountability chain that that there should be the, to the climate change committee um, by way of reporting mechanism, or you've given it a bit of thought? It's only just now that you've stimulated that type of conversation.
3: I don't think we have given it a lot of thought, Patsy, simply because there's not a lot of information within the you know. All so right, when okay. it, this is an organisation, what well, it's, it's probably raised more questions than it has given us answers. So I think All we right. would. Ask you all, you know, as part of your scrutiny process to maybe delve into that a lot more uh, yes. with a lot of concerns about the powers that the bill currently would give to a climate change commissioner um, yes. about the ability to to, to to seize information, obtain information and things like that. So I think we would encourage you maybe to, to go back and look at that and, and see whether that's suitable, but we are, we are raising our concerns, I think would be what, what I would okay. like to highlight.
7: Okay, and now that's grand. Just working through a number of issues here. Maybe to come back to to Victor there about MLA's and off and holidays. He might need to have a word with his local MP about that one more particularly. But anyway, um, we'll move on to the um, the level of emissions. And Victor, I think it was you said that um, the level of emissions in the uh, in the world per unit of production that in the North here we were a lot less. Now. Can you advise me just what that's based on, or where? Back to the facts and the science and the, the calculations of where that conclusion came from, because I think that'll be very helpful to the committee. Yeah,
1: the, the figure is a, really a figure for Western Europe, uh, uh, So it's not maybe just Northern Ireland. In, in effect, it's Western Europe. Figure is producers per kilo of beef is 52% of beef produced in the rest of the world. That, that, that's the figure that, that, that's used There's no us to come up with that figure. David, do you want to come in there?
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of emissions, and I suppose the comparison Patsy was also made with, with Brazil, uh, where it's four and a half times the emissions of what is produced in, in the UK or in Ireland. Um, but that figure uh, is, is an internationally recognised figure that in Western Europe uh, we are two and a half times less than the global average. So, so those are, are you know, not UFU figures, if you understand. I
7: said, just- All right, no, I get that. I was just wondering where the science where those figures were coming from. But it's not making a case specifically for Northern Ireland and there are other countries within the EU who are probably at stages of advancement around climate change measures too. So um the similar argument would be made by similar representative agriculture and farming groups right across the the, the whole of the EU, I presume then. No, no, that's grand. Um,
2: so, Patsy, if, if I could just take a moment, maybe to, to proceed to come on from that. I mean, in reality, and I said this at the start, in terms of the position that that the UK has taken and, and providing that pathway, it is the only country in the world at this stage that has done that. And, and I know there's a bit of a uh, an narrative again around, you know, comparing the North here with uh, with our, our friends in the Republic of Ireland. But in reality, you know, they have not as yet, and I think this needs to understood. They have not as yet. Uh, got to the point where they have those detailed uh, calculations or, or investigations, or indeed, uh, I mean, the, the, I suppose the message coming out from Chagas about the pathway that they're talking about is indicating a, a very modest reduction uh, around 15%, as we talked about, in the agricultural sector, and that they would allow then other sectors uh, to carry the weight of that target. So, so we're in a different yes. in terms of that comparison.
7: Yes. Um- Th- that's grand. Um, now then, around the uh, sequestration measures and carbon o- carbon audits and stuff like that, um, what do you feel those would be a hindrance or a problem, or um, how how do you see that as being, if you like, rolled out?
1: Yeah, on on a farm basis, on a farm basis, you know, I've had carbon audit done. But what greats me is. The sequestration of my grasslands or the sequestration of my hedges aren't counted. The few areas of trees I've planted around the farm are counted, but my hedges are counted. And I can't kind of get my head around that. What's the difference in planting a half an acre of trees for growing a half an acre length, you know, and linear. Mm-hmm. Hedges? You know, it doesn't make sense at all, and it's just completely unfair. Um, to me, I'm quite happy to reach over to society any uh, any uh, sequestration or any reduction in carbon that I don't need after my life's emissions are covered, but not before that. So you know I just think there's a fundamental problem here in in in, in accounting on, on, on carbon. Uh, you know, I was almost no way to do the carbon audit until they sorted that problem out. Because I said right, what's the point of counting one side of the balance and not count not adequately counting everything that's a zone within the farm gate.
7: I get that, and I appreciate all the work you've done around hedge planting there. Just as a throwing a wee tricky thing, and um, what about the 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 landowner that marches? You, does that be taken into account as his or yours, or? Oh, oh you mean the the
1: hedge? Yes, uh huh. Fifty fifty.
7: Fifty fifty. Okay, no, that's grand. Um, now, uh, to get back to the other issue then? Do you see? Um, New Zealand as being a helpful or a useful um, project that should be lifted or could be lifted for us, the, the North here, the, the 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 way of the measurement levels and the sort of, if you like, the the exception or um, added, if you like, um, estimation that has been given to agricultural produce and agri-food sector in terms of the measurements there. Do you feel that that's a route that that is preferable or useful or?
1: Yeah, well, look, you know, carbon is one thing in a whole series of challenges we, we face. It's biodiversity and, you know, the environment in a, in a lot bigger way. And I just looked at an article there that was sent through from The Guardian there on the, on the 29th of June of 2021. Uh, eat this, you save the world. And, and you know, the top, the, top, the top thing on that, on that sustainable foods, it says from wheat to venison, but the top thing, grass, fed, beef, and lamb are right at the top of that equation. And you know, grass-fed, fed beef and lamb. Is basically uh, yeah, including milk. is basically what Northern Ireland farm, farm. Is based on farming. on um yes. on, on the New Zealand system where they where they treat meat in separately. Yeah, probably we would look like at that. I want to bring Alien in just to, to to see your views on that. But yeah, I think it would be an advantage. I do think that we need to listen to the Oxford University professors and and, and, and examine this TWP kit instead of the TWP mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I think I mean, it is something I mean, New Zealand would have a similar structure to yourselves here and indeed in the south of Ireland so it is something that needs to be considered but what I would say is regardless of how you have the targets it's still very hard it's still going to be very hard and we're hearing real concerns from farmers in New Zealand as well about their struggles and meeting their climate change targets we're hearing about livestock reductions so we're seeing over there land being um, bought up for forestry, rural communities, and rural people displaced um, as jobs and farms disappear. So, whatever way the targets are set, let's be honest, they are going to be very difficult. Um, you know, regardless uh, for farmers to achieve, and that's why it's so important to get them right and to spend time making sure that those targets are uh, are correct and and fair uh, for farmers and rural communities um, in Northern Ireland.
7: Just on that point, Aileen, um, I take it that in regard to New Zealand, it's not a new factor for big, intensive farming units to be set up and, uh, if you like, the small person being displaced.
3: I I can't comment on the detail of what's happening in New Zealand, but certainly that's something we would have concerns of here. Um, And, I mean, again, I mean, you have to consider the perverse outcomes of of you know aspirations to hit climate targets and so forth. But also, I mean, I'll also give you an example closer to home. We're hearing because every organization now wants to be seen to be doing something on climate change. So we're hearing of corporates in London buying land in Wales to put into trees, uh, again, displacing farms. Uh, Farmers have rented that land for years, being put off the land. And then that's having an impact. Our colleagues in Energy Wales are looking to putting together a paper on this because what they're saying is, Farmers in those areas tend to be the Welsh speakers, um, have you know, linked more linked closely to the traditional Welsh culture, and that's being lost, and they're starting to see that already. So, um, you know. We need to think carefully about all the implications um, that that climate change uh, legislation can have, and that's why it's important to take the time to look at expert advice that is relative mm. to this region, um, and, and think carefully before you set targets that could cause um, very, very damaging consequences for for the
7: for the rural community. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thanks I'm, very much, okay. Can I just come in
1: there, policy, or- you're yeah, exactly right the, the herd sizes are getting bigger and that is uh, because they have you know, so much housing they come as long as winter you know some of the some of the areas where they would winter their cows on or wintered outside and they, there's quite a lot of soil damage been done and water quality is one of the big issues that is facing farmers in new zealand but look the family farm structure in northern ireland i think has a lot to offer um we are minute in, in, in terms of the rest of the world when you go to australia Program at thirty thousand, fifty thousand people. What you just simply do not get that in the UK. But uh, there is an increasing amount of small farms disappearing, and our farm sizes are getting bigger. And we need to watch and not push this to the extent either for efficiency, for, for for carbon, or something to the detriment of our rural economies. Yeah, our farm. We were hearing from from Wales, and one of the things that they were so worried about was these corporates and the effect of these rural. Communities where their Welsh language was in danger of being lost out as regards this. So, you know, everything has other other areas that affect that you wouldn't initially think about. Um, but we need to go carefully on this one.
7: Okay, okay thanks very much, thank Victor. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Patrick. I'm, uh, I'm going to move on to Claire.
4: Thanks very much, Chair. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can. Great. Listen, thank you very much. Um, for that, and there was a comment made at the start there that um, I think uh, mentioning that you're angry or, or you get upset when you hear that Northern Ireland farmers are are, are acute lagging behind. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more on that one, in my opinion. I think they're being held back. And I think that example that you give about, you know, carbon sequestration isn't even being accounted for in terms of what's being... Um, Sequestered from planting hedges and stuff. You know, we just don't have that body of evidence and that research, and I think that's a, a yeah a fundamental flaw uh, as a starting point. But you also started there by giving us your membership numbers. I think it was eleven thousand numbers or uh, th- eleven thousand farmers. I think you said that you had as members. Does the you have any corporate membership? Yes, uh, Claire. We have
1: eleven and a half thousand farm family memberships. And that, uh, you know, my own farms, typical uh, I farm in the farm business, my wife works in the farm business and my son has a farm business as well. We've one UFU membership. We did a survey in some of our groups and it was 2.6 members per membership. So we've 11,500 farm and family members. Yeah, because of the structure of Northern Ireland farming t- closing and our number of farmers are going down every year and we are a membership organisation, we get our funds from our members and that's why I said at the start we were committed. Um, some of these organisations, when I've asked them, you know, oh, do you want to become a member? Just say, you know, give us your name, and that's all we need. You know, to me, that doesn't deliver very much commitment to 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 a cause um, if there's no cost. But uh, what I'm what, what I'm saying is, yeah, because of of, of our far, of the pool that we're taking our memberships out of, decreasing all the time, we had to look at other ways of trying to get membership. So we have corporate members. But having these corporate memberships, they were very clearly told this doesn't preclude the UFU lobbying against any practices they do. They are there to recognise that they depend, their businesses depend on farmers and farmers doing well. And their corporate membership shows that because of the lobby organi- uh, lobbying of, of Northern Ireland UFU, uh, that that keeps farmers farming, so therefore keeps their businesses going. So, for instance, we can have a a, a corporate member as a meat plant, and we can uh, publicly uh, go out and uh, and slag them for something that we think is malpractice as far as our farmers. And they're very clearly told that when they they join up as corporate members.
4: That's great. Thank you. Uh, And listen, you uh, been covered as well, but you know, the concerns that you raise about the powers of the, the Climate Commissioner. I just want to point out for the record as well that, uh, you know, in terms of accountability, it's the Northern Ireland Assembly that would be appointing the commissioner. Um, So I think that accountability level is definitely there. And the powers given in the bill to the climate commissioner is based on exactly the same as other existing Northern Ireland commissioners. And of course, then within this bill, the commissioner has absolutely no enforcement powers at all. And there was also mentioned then about um concerns about Northern Ireland moving beyond the recommendations of the, the CCC when no one else in the UK are. And again, just want to point out for the record that other GP regions have moved beyond what the CCC did recommend as their targets as well, and they're setting their own net zero targets in primary legislation. Um, but also under the CCC's balanced pathway, Scenario given um methane emissions in Northern Ireland would fall by 42% from 2020, so it's last year to 2050. Um, and that's even lower than the New Zealand split target for methane, which is 24 to 47 percent by 2050. Um, and that's proving quite disastrous for New Zealand's biodiversity and also for their non-dairy farmers. Um, like the things they say do not support the idea of a split target, would you? Yeah,
1: I'm going to go over to alien to, to answer the, the middle part of that question at least, anyway then we'll come in, yeah.
3: I think firstly pick up, Claire that you said that other regions have not uh, followed climate change advice in terms of their targets, but they have followed a Climate Change Commission pathway, is my understanding. So their, their targets that they've selected are the maybe more extreme or different routes in the pathway. They're still part of the climate change overall advice. Um, in terms of a split target for methane, what I, I think what we've clearly said is we need to look into this further. Um, we haven't taken a, a firm policy position within our organisation. Um, our position was that we need to initially follow the Climate Change Committee advice uh, and determine targets for Northern Ireland. If you're choosing to go down that, uh, a different route, then we need to look at uh, uh, and not following that advice in the setting of the private member's bill target, then we need to look at methane separately. And as an organisation, we need to sit down and go through that carefully. But what we're saying is we suggest that you bring in the experts uh, and have that discussion. We listen into that. Uh, we will take all that information together, and we'll come back to you, I think, with a position on it. But at the minute, it certainly needs to be considered as an option, uh, which is an alternative uh, uh, to what's sitting in the private member's bill at the minute okay so at the minute do you have no position
4: on split targets then
3: i think what we're saying is we're still open to looking at that we have no firm view i am um, on it but it needs to be considered if we're continuing to go down the line of a private member's bill target of 2045.
4: Okay. and if we're looking at something else you would be in favor so i'm getting a bit confused
3: if we're looking at sticking with the 82 percent by 2050 i think we're happy enough to stick to it as it as it stands Without split target Without a separate target. Okay,
4: listen. Are you aware of the Farm Zero C project in the Republic of Ireland? It's a project that intends for five thousand dairy farms to have zero carbon emissions within the next five years and it's just received a two million euro prize for scientific innovation. And I'm just wondering, have you had any um any communications or targets or are you aware of the work that's going on there?
3: I, I maybe come in there not entirely aware of it because it's fairly recent, Claire, but what I can say is we have a similar project in Northern Ireland called Arc Zero, uh, which is much further on than what it is in the south of Ireland, but it it only, is only involving a small number of farms. The other, um, the other thing um, that I would say is the soil uh, scheme that the Minister is bringing forward with the carbon element will take us Far further ahead than anything they're doing in the south of Ireland in terms of the baseline measurements that we will have on carbon on farms. And in fact, what I'm hearing is that there is nothing else like it anywhere else in the world. So we have the potential to be a world leader uh, in this region in terms of our measurement and our baseline data um, on farms in Northern Ireland. What that doesn't mean is that it'll make it any easier for us to hit a net zero target by dead 2045. But it does mean that we'll have signed information on what to base, um, you know, base decisions on. But um, certainly, even with that, even with all the new um, science and technologies and mitigation measures that are on the ground, it will still be almost impossible. It, will be impossible to hit net zero by twenty forty five without drastic livestock cuts in Northern Ireland. So we can do all these positive things, but we need the right legislative framework, we need the right time and the right space to allow us to get there and to start us on a journey. At the minute, the way things are are looking, um there's almost no point in doing that work because we just cannot deliver what you're what you're wanting us to do uh, within the time space, space, space that has been given. It's great to hear that that work's being done because those baselines are absolutely
4: fundamental and that's exactly the type of, um, the the lack of having that is exactly what is holding many sectors, including your own back. Um, But my last question, I suppose before Chair, if you could allow me, is I would love to know, do you have any concerns about the ability of Northern Ireland agri-food sector to compete at an international level if we should fail to to reach net zero especially when other jurisdictions GB and ROI are moving forward with really high levels of climate ambition and we know that glo- global food corporations are committing themselves to be net zero not just in their operations but also in their supply chains
1: yeah i'll i'll reach that one over to david but the the, the short answer is no because we're ahead of the net. just by david yeah i, I suppose we we'll go back there to perhaps the comparison i made earlier when patsy was asking a question
2: about you know that discussion about the different place uh, you know as i said i said uh, uk has has been part of a uh, well basically we, we have had that net zero pathway uh, for quite a number of years and, and i mean in reality but we take, for example, the Republic of Ireland, for the past 13 years, the UK has been on that pathway since 2008. Uh, and in reality, it has not been an issue or a disadvantage uh, to ROI in the past 13 years. And I think the difficulty we have is that the comparison that perhaps has been made is the aspirational wishes. Uh, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, I fully appreciate, uh, you know, campaigns um, are, are well and good and, and obviously, you know, a lot of countries, not just in the south of Ireland, but a lot of countries are saying about what they want to do and what they would like to do, but they have not been costed out or they have not identified a pathway uh, to, live, to the delivering those objectives uh, which the UK has done. So I have no fear whatsoever because in reality, where Northern Ireland is being asked to go by the CCC, Panel is, is is much ahead of what has been asked of agriculture in Oro Bay at present.
3: Can I just come in on the corporate point? Um, there are lots of corporates making lots of um, you know uh, proposals to hit net zero and so forth. Look at the small print. Uh, that is not comparable to your overall legislative target. They're looking at maybe things within their own, um, their very small, narrow agenda within their own businesses and so forth. So you need to look at the, the detail of what those are doing. Are they offsetting emissions in countries overseas? Are they buying up farmland and displacing farmers in Wales, as I, I spoke about um, earlier? So it's not just as simple, and it's not comparable to a legislative target either. So you need to look at all the detail underneath those corporate actions as well.
1: Yeah, we have heard of corporates buying up land for uh forestation in India. Well now to me that that you know if that's how you achieve it that, that to me
5: that's crazy. Okay. Uh, I'm taking over the chair just uh, for a few brief moments. So Rosemary, you're next.
8: Thank you and thank you, Aileen, Victor and David, for your presentation um, this morning there. I want to just uh, query something. I think perhaps maybe Aileen, you, you're best place to answer this. It's in relation to comments. I think there's a little bit of confusion out there. We had comments from the National uh, NFU in relation to perhaps climate uh, carbon zero can be reached by 2040. Can you and, you know, we're talking about... Obviously, in this in the bill we speak of, we're talking about carbon zero by 2045. Um, uh, CCC is talking about 2050 with 82% carbon zero here in Northern Ireland. So, I'm wondering if you could give me a wee bit of an explanation about the 2040 uh, date and timeline with that. Then, if you spoke about.
3: OK, th- thanks, Rosemary. Me. I mean, the NFU have set themselves an aspirational target for their farms um, for a net zero. So it's aspirational, it's not a legislative requirement. It's not, a, it's not any sort of a requirement. But it's based on measuring net emissions on farms. So it's back to this difference between gross emissions and net emissions. So in the National Inventory, agriculture is measured on and its gross emissions. And, and that's you know where the, the legislative targets come in. The NFU are looking at measuring emissions produced and then offsetting that against the carb- the carbon on, on uh, in your hedges and your grasses and so on that Victor has talked about, and also renewable energy. That's not how the national inventory and legislative targets work, so you can't compare the two things. They're completely different. The other thing I would say is that um, the NFU are very aware of our situation here in Northern Ireland and are very support- supportive of our position and are concerned um, about, uh, about the direction of travel here, particularly in relation to livestock numbers. So a key point that all of the UK farming unions have in common is that we all um, are very much uh, of opinion that you should not reduce the ability to feed UK consumers from high quality, locally produced food. So we do not support livestock cuts um, uh, to to meet climate change targets to the extent that we're we're talking about. Uh, One thing I would say is that we we do share in common with the NFU because their, their objectives and how they would deliver their aspirations are uh, a three-pronged approach. So what they want to do is improve productivity, uh, increase carbon sequestration on farms, and also um, bring in renewable uh, renewable electricity production and bioeconomy measures and so forth. Those are identical to what EFU um, have been supporting through the Greenhouse Gas Implementation Partnership. We have been on that journey. um, And in fact, what I would say is where we are going to, The the soil health scheme and so forth that we're proposing and the minister's uh, developing um, will actually probably take us ahead of NFU in terms of having a baseline and having actions on farms. So um, NFU, yes, you know, they have that target in place. Point to make, it's not comparable with the legislation target uh, and also the the pathway and how they're hoping to achieve that target. We are very much ready on that same page and doing similar actions.
2: I could just very quickly add, Rosemary, I mean, just on the point that Alien has raised around renewable energies, which is probably not well known, and I'd have to admit possibly not well known even among our agricultural industry, but renewable energy, on-farm renewable energy uh, in Northern Ireland is providing the energy for 150,000 homes, so that renewable energy piece in Northern Ireland is, is very much part of our farming infrastructure, it's not on every farm obviously, but uh, you know we have obviously got a uh, Wind turbines, We have uh, AD plants. We have uh, all, all of the different means by which uh, energy can be generated. And just to note that 150,000 homes in Northern Ireland are already being supplied with energy from our farms.
8: Yeah, thank you. And um, thank you, Aileen, for that. Just one other, um, our, another question I want to speak in relation to. Um, the private members bill we look at, talks about carbon zero by 2045. Then we have had the climate, the CCC documentation, which talks about 82% carbon zero by 2050. Could you explain, can can you explain why the United Kingdom will be reaching carbon zero actually by 2050, but Northern Ireland is only eighty-two, reaching at it at eighty-two percent.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll start with that, Rosemary, and hello again. Um,
8: a lot of misunderstanding out there, and that's why I'm asking. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Northern Northern Ireland produces a lot of food for the UK. We feed ten million. Most of that, uh, it's 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 consumers in the UK. So the Climate Change Commission looked at that, and they took that into account. So the UK reaching uh, net zero by 2050 is including Northern Ireland, but it's the same as on a farm-to-farm basis. One farm may be able to sequestrate more and help out the, the next door farmer. So because of the Highland probably of Scotland and because of the less intensive livestock region within other areas of the UK, they were saying, OK, we can't put those targets in Northern Ireland because we need them to produce the beef and the milk basically, and the sheep in Northern Ireland. So that is why the, the, the 82% figure was given for Northern Ireland. Uh, but the same as we did it on Northern Ireland on a farm-to-farm basis, one one farmer may be reducing his to 82% and another farmer may, may be doing 120%. So that uh, overall, we can reach net 0 by 2050. So we shouldn't be putting ourselves down in Northern Ireland. We are reaching net zero as a UK by 2050. Uh, it's just the accountancy divisions within that. There will be areas in, in south-west Scotland that will be, well, will be over 80, or less than 82%. There will be areas in the north of Scotland, for instance, that will be well over 100% simply for the intensity of livestock. So it's no different in Northern Ireland when you take it on a UK basis.
8: Okay. Okay. Thank you. And uh, the last question I want to ask is on the carbon, on these carbon audits. I don't know if, if you read the Irish Farmer's Journal, but you'll notice a week ago there, were, uh, there was an investigation in soils on a farm in Tullamore, and the amount of difference in the different fields within the farm was very, very interesting, and I'm wondering, is there, will, would you be advocating a policy for individual farms to have an audit carried out in relation, because there's such a difference in variance within the farms?
1: I'll start and I'll reach it over to David. And uh, again, thanks for that question. Yeah, technology is increasing all the time. Uh, for instance, now your arable guys, when the combine goes down the field and maps the yield, when, when they're spreading fertilizer or need slurries, there's a, a monitoring uh, uh, equipment on that slurry so that the, the areas of the field that need more nutrients get a variable rate of nutrients according to the yield of the crop before. Those will come in. We're now looking at the green Greenmount has purchased, for instance, a, a, a system for their slurries where they will be able to you know, spread a field and there'll be a higher rate going on on some areas of the field that need it to other areas. That's all the new technology that's coming in, and that will increase our carbon storage on, on our lands. But one thing I was I was touching on in, in my presentation was how good our, our soils are with that core carbon. And like I've read a book of sustainable farming in America, and they're bringing back livestock into those dust bowls. That's what happened. They, they cleared the livestock away, and, and, and now they're suffering. Their organic matter suffered. suffering. They're, they're having to grow their crops purely with artificial Fertilizer, the, the soil health and the micro microbes and all are being killed by that artificial and like worm counts is a big thing now in Northern Ireland farms. Soil samples is a big thing, uh, you know, and, and we are increasing that and, and this project for our soils will will include later which, which you know identifies areas where we may have run off. So technology is increasing. I hope you uh, if you get off of today you can know that Northern Ireland are staying up to the plate but we're heading uh, in this direction and, and we are responsible, we're not bringing our heads in the sand, not tackling these issues. David, do you want to add in? Yeah, just specific to the carbon audits,
2: Rosemary, uh, in fact, I mean, I think, just to make clear, uh, obviously we have uh, as well, and I'm sure it's in front of your committee and indeed we have sent on some of the papers of the work that uh, our different sectors have done in term- with the Anderson Centre independent consultants in terms of looking at future agricultural support. All of those, whether it was the sheep sector or dairy or indeed the arable sector, all of them have recognised that in terms of future agricultural support, uh, there will be an element, uh, indeed a great element of it, around delivering outcomes. Those outcomes, we're not blind to the fact that those outcomes will be about uh, reducing our emissions and indeed uh, the carbon sequestration. So those carbon audits are very much part of what the UFU has, I suppose, uh, suggested as as being part of that. So I don't think in terms of our farms, that there is any fear around uh, carbon audits. It's something that we're recommending to DERA in terms of future support, that that is a mechanism by which we can determine, I suppose, the the, the level of sequestration, the level of emissions on, on individual farms. But just also to point out, and this is something that we've brought to the attention, even of the Climate Change Committee, Uh, work that has been ongoing and and the President has alluded to uh, the work around manures. Uh, I mean AfB have had trials down there at Hillsborough for 50 odd years uh, in relation to, uh, well I suppose I'll describe it bluntly as a slurry project, a manure project, but in truth they have been then uh, as part of that, which has proven to be uh, of great benefit to us, have been measuring uh, the level of carbon in the soil. So they have that historical data which has shown that they are able to sequester and increase the level of carbon in the soils over that time period. And that's something which the CCC were unaware of, and uh, they believe that soils reached a point where they were saturated and had to, could take on no more carbon. The work at AFB would seem to indicate otherwise, and that's something we've drawn to the attention of the CCC panel. But just in conclusion, no fear of carbon audits. No. Thank
8: you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: To add to that, like we as farmers were, were, we're developing new technologies. For instance, we used to go out to the, the field to spread our spray, we used to blow it up into the air, which caused a lot of air cont- contamination. And we're moving on a period, uh, you know, on a trajectory to do away with that completely. Um, some areas of the country will be well over 50% now spread by lower, low, low emission spreading, which means that nutrient's not been lost in the air. If you smell that flame by a field, that's, that's nutrients it's that been lost. It's a loss to the farmers, it's to everything. So we are on that trajectory by 2025 to have all farms spreading by low emission. So I just showed, give us the time scale, give us the tools and we will get there.
5: Okay. Thank you. Thank you. William,
9: you're next. Thank you, Mr. Vice-Chair. And can I thank uh, uh, Victor, David and Eileen for the presentation. Can I declare an interest in a farmer, or partner in a farm business? And also a member of the UAFU. Uh, for me, I'm disappointed that there are still members of this committee wedded to the private members' bill against all the expert advice from the climate change committee right down to the industry. Uh, uh, for me, we have made it clear that, and for me, I believe it's very important that we, in any scenario, we listen to the expert advice. Last week we had Colonel Donnelly on uh, from the Northern Ireland Meat Exporters Association. He said that the Private Members' uh, Bill could possibly reduce livestock numbers in Northern Ireland up to eighty percent. That would be that's up to eighty percent, but that could be a massive impact on our local farmers. But not only that, hundred thousand jobs are depending on uh, the agri-food sector. So. Has any work been done within the union to look at the possible job losses that could be, you know, created due to the possible uh, going ahead with this private members' bill?
1: Yes, well, yes, William. Uh, uh, that we have commissioned that work with the K- KPMG, and uh, those figures, and indeed they're even more stark than what you come at, and Those uh, uh, interim figures from the K- KPMG, and their initial look at the thing, and I must qualify that this is just. Um, first looking at, at the figures, but they reckon that to comply with the private member's bill we could be looking at, at, at up to 85% reduction in livestock numbers in Northern Ireland. Now make no, depart- <laughs> n- make no mistake, this would wipe Northern Ireland industry out, wipe out completely. You have to find 5.2 more billion for the economy and you have to look for the guts of 113,000 jobs in the economy. Make no mistake what this would do to Northern Ireland. This is completely ludicrous to continue down this road without, that, without taking a bit uh, of respect to that. That is not us coming up with those figures. That is not scaremongering by the, uh, by the UFU. This is KPMG, uh, a reputable company, asked to look at this, and this is the figures they come back. shocked us, and I hope it, continues to ch- uh, it will also shock you to realise that we need to take this in a more... A sustainable approach forward, otherwise we will wipe, wipe out our industry. David wants to
2: come Yeah, up. I just want to add to that, William, you've asked about uh, you know, the job losses. And I suppose, uh, look, I don't know the detail, but I'm sure uh, Mike Johnson from the Dairy Council probably has alluded perhaps, so my apologies if I'm repeating, but he may have told you last week. But in reality, um, if you consider in the milk sector, which I know you're involved in yourself, uh, you know, if, if we talk about 15% of the milk going to the liquid market, in effect, uh, what this would do to the dairy sector would basically mean we don't need process, we don't need cheeses, we don't need all of the different products that are uh, manufactured and made from milk. We wouldn't have the milk. So in terms of the job losses, um, you know, it, it's hard for us uh, to quantify. I think the processing and the industry are, are better able perhaps to quantify what potential there is for job losses. Uh, but, but in reality, it would be pretty stark.
3: Uh, if, if we were to face uh, reductions on the levels that have been indicated, yeah. can, I just, can I just add in there as well, just to highlight that those uh, the impact will be concentrated on our ruminant industry, so our our beef, our milk, and our sheep, um, as opposed to pig and poultry. The vast over ninety percent of our greenhouse gas emissions in livestock in the livestock sector come from ruminants, um, just because of biology. So those are the sectors who will be hardest hit. By this, uh, by, by by the consequences of this legislation uh, uh, going forward.
1: Yeah, uh, look. If we spin this forward, our rural communities will die. Our our, our countryside will be no longer pretty for our tourists. We will end up with wildernesses. Is that really what these what you as MLAs want? I would urge you to consider carefully the starkness of of, of, of this. Uh, you know, coming come from this, eighty five percent. Uh, nothing's more crazy in all my life. Uh, You know, an industry that has been built up over the years, Northern Ireland, that farming has kept Northern Ireland on its feet, it's kept going. And we have that younger farmer there keen to develop and keen to grow our industry. And uh, we have to do it sustainably. Um, I want to pass my farm on to my son, and hopefully it will go on for generations. We've been there for many generations. This is not about, uh, you know, the remnant of our farms and not having sustainable farms going forward this is about feeding the world the fact of the matter that if that went ahead and we reduced our ruminant sector by 85 percent the first place to 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 be hurt would be our house that would be completely uh, adverse to another private uh, member's bill uh, for lfes that, there's no point of, of doing that and there's no point of supporting a private member's bill for LFE's and supporting this climate bill, the two are incompatible. Um, You know, we would decimate Northern Ireland as an industry and indeed we would aid climate change. We would be pushing the thing the wrong way because what are we going to do in the UK? The UK is going to import that food from other areas in the world and as we heard, we can produce it here at 52%, that red meat industry at 52% of the carbon of the rest of the world. So you're really going to say that it's sensible to cut that production out here in Northern Ireland to reach a, a self-imposed target that, that, that is not agreed by the scientists um, and yet import it from another area of the world with two and a half times more carbon footprint to increase uh, the problem we have with
5: climate
9: yeah, change.
5: Uh, I, I will allow you to come back in. I'm sorry for interjecting, uh, but I, I do believe that it's important that... You know, we have some balance. I mean, we appreciate you giving your evidence and it has been very useful and will be very useful to the committee. And I understand that this is a very emotional uh, subject. Uh, but I, mean, I have to pull you up for using words such as decimate rural communities and killing the industry. There's none of that in this bill. And we're talking to you as Representative of Zolster Farmers Union and I know that a lot of this bill has been uh, dial down to the impact on or potential impact on the agriculture industry. This is a climate bill for the whole of the North across all sectors, industry, infrastructure, travel, and agriculture, transport, etc. I, mean, I, I, I have listened to a lot of the stuff you've said this morning, and I agree with a lot. I mean, Sinn Féin, for example, uh, are fully supportive of a just transition to ensure that you know, whatever sectors there there's negative impact on all sectors including agriculture uh, and i've listened to you about the the, the issue of the climate commissioner uh, and to be quite frank i actually think you, you have picked up the role of the climate commissioner wrong the climate commissioner is there to offer advice and produce reports as claire has pointed out the accountability of this bill will be with mlas uh, and you know i mean i, I would have thought and I'd like to ask this question and as I say I will allow William and again given all of the stuff that you have said this morning and given all of the concerns that you have had for in your view potential a- impacts give, bear in mind that there's not a single target uh, in this bill with regard to agriculture so I mean I'd be looking forward to see KPMG's report uh, and, and what it's based on because this bill doesn't contain any targets for the agriculture and I have asked Claire has asked and I'm not sure we've actually got an answer the only target actually that exists around agriculture uh, is from the CCC where they've talked about a 42% reduction in methane so I haven't seen the, the Minister's bill I don't know what's contained in this but I do know what's contained in the private member's bill is carbon action plans where five yearly reports will come to the Assembly and MLAs who will be accountable to rural communities uh, and elsewhere will get to discuss and decide uh, on advice from the Department of Agriculture what plans over the next five years and targets are uh, produced on the best available science at that time for the agriculture industry. So I mean, I I do think that we need to keep this uh, conversation based on the reality of what's in the bill and not about scaremongering about what's not in the bill. So I would be interested to see your view on what you as an industry think uh, could be the benefits from the actual the five yearly carbon action plans and the accountability of the assembly in terms of producing those targets. Thanks, but
1: uh, I, I can't let this go. Your target is set net zero by
5: twenty forty five. Not for agriculture. You know, I mean, we're talking about targets for carbon for the no, no. We haven't produced a target for any of the sectors yet in this bill. Okay.
1: KBMG are looking at getting net zero for agriculture by 2045. And those are the figures they come up. They're not made up with the UFUs, to scaremonger or anything else. An 85% reduction in ruminant livestock. Now I know Philip, you come from a local area, local to myself, and can you imagine the devastation that that will cause to your local area? And I can tell you, you know, the, the, the whole rural landscape will be devastated and I don't back down from saying that you know, if we go in that trajectory that's what will happen and it will happen in the, in the marginal land and the hill land that I farm first. So uh, you know I am not backing down on, on the claims I make there on uh, figures that are not made up by the UFU but uh, choked shortcuts in the UFU but came from KPMG. David you, know you want to pick up? Well I, I suppose just on the point Philip you make about you know, that you will be
2: listening to, to Dara and the advice that Dara would bring. I mean sadly and this is a sad reflection for us. As, a, as an organisation, that advice from DARA to date has not been listened to. So, therefore, you know, it doesn't give, and I said this in a very open statement that I made, there is no confidence among the agricultural community in relation to this private member's bill. That is why so many of our members wrote, phoned, and contacted their MLAs with the concerns that they have and we, look, I've been on radio interviews uh, with the, the Chair of the Climate Coalition who has said it's lies and scaremongering. I, I want to state as fact, we're not involved in lies and scaremongering, we're bringing forward the facts of what the implications of all of this will be for Northern Ireland, for our economy and quite frankly if, if those uh, within I suppose the proposers of that bill and supporters of that bill have not to date Listen
5: to that Dera advice, then it doesn't give us confidence that that will happen going forward. I, I, mean, well, 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 I mean, you know, you have recognised that this is an evolving situation. You know, so te- technology will, will come into being that that currently isn't. I mean, you, you've actually said in in the previous question that you have actually uh, identified and and given. Advice to the CCC that they weren't aware of. You know, so you know this is going to be an evolving situation, and, and that's why I'm interested in your views on the five yearly carbon plans, because you know some of the heavy lifting in the first number of years aren't going to be taken up by agriculture. Uh, you know, which will allow time for preparation for new technology, for new science, uh, and for greater measurements. Yeah. Yes, certainly,
1: I we hope that science will evolve. On that. Certainly, you know that's going to be our procedure. But how do you create a, a, a policy on something that might be, or hopefully will be, or anything else? I
3: want to bring alien in on that point. Yeah, I mean that, that's the difficulty. We are being told by the scientists that with the new technologies and mitigation measures, it is nowhere near enough to get us to a net zero target for the by twenty forty five or even twenty fifty. Yes, science will evolve, but we need time, and we need uh, room to, to, to allow that science to evolve. With the trajectory that we would need to have to hit the 2045 target, we would have to take action sooner and harder. And that will obviously have the consequences, huge consequences for agriculture community. And I just want to add to that, my job within the union is to present our members with facts to set out both sides of the arguments so that they can take a policy position based on the evidence that's in front of them. It would be a lot easier for us to just go along with what's on the private member's bill. There'd be no hassle, there'd be no criticism. We wouldn't have to do all these radio interviews, but we've looked, tried to look for light at the end of the 2045 tunnel. But what I see is a train coming down the line. Um, and it's not possible, it's not fair, and it will have massive consequences. So I think for the sake of farming families, we are really urging you to listen to our what we're telling you, to take the advice that you've been given, um, and to do the right thing uh, when it comes to this with the targets that are being looked at.
5: Okay, and the chair's back, so uh, I appreciate that, and the conversation w- will certainly a- evolve, and, and the engagement is good. So I interrupted William, so he can
9: come back. in. For me, I hope that common sense prevails in this. Uh, that, irrespective of what some MLAs do say. The Climate Change Committee said that under every scenario that they looked at, it was not possible for Northern Ireland to reach net zero by 2050. under every scenario that they looked at, so given that advice, and also given the, given the real, reality that even we did go, that Northern Ireland did go for the Prime member's bill, the difference would only be not put in the UK. As a whole, the emissions would only be 0.73%. So we decimate our industries to achieve practically nothing. That does not make common sense, and I hope our MLAs don't bury their head in the sand and listen to expert advice.
0: Okay. Right. Thanks. Thanks, that uh, William. Um, folks, I'm going to have to move on because we have Professor Thorne uh, and Professor Jackson uh, waiting. Um, and I want to thank you, Eileen, uh, Victor and David, for your evidence session this morning and for uh, for your wide range of commentaries. Thank you very, very much for that. And we'll be well be seeing and hearing from you, no doubt, on this issue and on a whole range of issues in the time ahead. So thank you very much.
1: and Just before I go, could I uh, repeat our invitation for you as MLEs uh, of the ERA Committee to come out to farm to see some of the good work we are doing uh i think we're setting date up date data for some date in august to a farm and the direction of jessica pollock and i would encourage you all to try to make an effort to get out there to see what is happening on northern ireland farms thank you
0: thank you, thank you very much. okay folks take care now um thank you members okay members. i'm going to just jump on we can come back and we can do the uh the other two items um after but but with professor thorne waiting here um we need to keep our, our questions and stuff concise because we've more evidence with two more oral evidence sessions here so we have uh, okay members Any uh, number 11 oral evidence session from uh, Professor Peter Thorne I want to refer to the written briefing from Pr- Professor Thorne at page 55 and welcome Professor Thorne um, uh, by uh, by Starleaf uh, you're very welcome and I want to apologize in advance we're running a bit over time this morning so thank you very much for your indulgence Professor Thorne
10: okay thank you um, so I have um, provided written input. Uh, given that you're behind time, I won't spend a long time on it. Um, just by way of background, um, I'm, uh, from, uh, the, I'm from England originally. Um, I work at Maynooth University as the Director of the Icarus Climate Research Units um, in, in the Republic. Um, and I would just start by saying that the basic science is clear. Um, we have warmed the climate, it's undisputably down to us. We're currently about 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. Um, the part of the issue to us is irretrievably greenhouse gases. Um, so we have a problem, we know we've got that problem. I'm a physical climate scientist, that's the bit I can tell you. But what I can't tell you is how to solve it. Um, I have looked at the bill, um, and I have been involved uh, in, through the Citizens' Assembly and through, um, through various um, other activities in the Republic, through the Eruptus Joint Committee and, um, laterally, the Climate Change Advisory Council in this area. Um, looking at the bill as written, um, it's not clear to me me that it covers all three pillars of what I consider necessary climate governance, um, which are the gov- climate needs to be an all of government problem. So it needs to be led from the centre. Um, it needs to then have an independent committee, which may be yourselves, who on a sustained basis are fundamentally uh, holding departments ministers' feet proverbially to the fire, and then he needs the independent advisory, which I see a lot of in the legislation. So it's really those first two aspects that I don't see strongly in the proposed legislation. I don't see how this is done at an all-of-government level, and I don't see how there is a role for an independent committee that can keep people to account. Um, I think the calling of climate emergency is is relevant, but calling a climate emergency in and of itself is, uh, is nice words. It sharpens minds, but it needs to be followed by action. Um, looking at the targets as they're given, they're appropriate. They're consistent with the UK Climate Change Committee. They're consistent with the current IPCC. The one caveat I would have is that There is a whole new suite of intergovernmental panel on climate change reports coming out over the next 18 months, and that might well change um, what happens, what that advice is. Um, The Climate Action Plan, I had a number of specific queries on it. I find it particularly laudable that the the biodiversity and land management aspects are in there. We must recognise that climate change is not the only Crisis we are facing, we are facing fundamentally both at a global level and on the island of Ireland a biodiversity crisis in addition. Um, the legislation is very strong on mitigation, it has much less to say on adaptation. We already live in a changed world. Um, the flooding that you saw in Derry and Donegal um, back three summers ago. That is indicative of the kind of change that we will have to look at. Sea levels will continue to rise, so that's key, and the just transition is key. And the 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 the, the farming community, but not just the farming community, need to be protected in taking this through. But we cannot escape from the fact that ultimately every greenhouse gas molecule we emit be it from fossil fuels, from biogenic sources, is adding to the problem. Uh, We see just this week in Canada how severe that problem might be becoming. um, And we absolutely need to take action. So I think I'll leave my opening remarks there to try and catch you up some time. Thank you. Um,
0: Okay. Thank you, uh, Professor Thorne, And um, again, uh, apologies for running a little bit, uh, run a bit over, uh, and for, thanking you for your indulgence of uh, staying with us uh, on this year. Um, okay, um, Professor, uh, I suppose. Well, may I ask you? You very, you do have a very. I've been looking at your uh, um, resume or your your background. You have a very strong background in environmental and climate science. Um, if you could set a legislation to tackle climate uh, change here in Ireland, north and south, what, what target <coughs> would you set?
10: So the target would have to be commensurate with the, with the science. If we if we we've seen already at 1.2 degrees, what the impacts of that are upon the upon the climate system, upon people fundamentally, we we absolutely should aspire to the Paris climate goal. And that climate goal is to keep temperatures below two degrees and aspire to keep them below one and a half degrees. To do that does require, as is noted by the special report on 1.5 degrees from IPCC, um, effectively getting to net zero by 2050 globally. Um, And in terms of both historical responsibility, um, but also capabilities, countries such as the UK and Ireland should be aiming to be not just net zero, but net negative. We should actually be aiming to draw down greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide um, in the longer term. But net zero by 2050 is a reasonable goal, commensurate with the science and commensurate with globally ambition to keep below, well below two degrees centigrade.
0: Um, and in your briefing note, uh, Professor Thorne, you you made reference to that there are clear codependencies with the UK-wide legislation and the UK CCC, and this uh, creates a complication, a complicated line of governance. Could you just elaborate on that further, and how do you think it could be less, made less complicated?
10: So, so it's very hard to see how it's made less complicated. I mean, in the, in the Republic of Ireland, we're in a very fortunate position in that we have absolute competence. Clearly, in Northern Ireland, that's far more complicated. You are already having to observe UK-wide climate change legislation, and you already are under the auspices of the UK Climate Change Committee. Um, and it would be uh, re- it would be retrograde to actually remove those obligations. so you will have whatever you do as an assembly, whatever you do as a devolved uh, arm of the UK needs to be commensurate with the UK wide legislation and the UK wide um, bodies that have been set up and that's where I see it's far more complicated for you than it would be for, for us in the Republic of Ireland um, where there is no such codependency.
0: And and that, and that then again, that flags up the challenge because being on the same, whatever about the constitutional situation and the jurisdiction situation here, we are, we are on a simple island, the same island, and the climate doesn't know any boundaries. So, you know, would you see an important importance of, uh, you know, uh, aligning or harmonizing with what's going on in the south i
10: i, I absolutely think that the, the climate is one area where we where we need to for, forget our differences as you said climate does not uh, does not observe geopolitical boundaries it doesn't care that there's a border on the island of ireland it is so we need we do need to work together um at numerous levels, um, at, at industry level, at civil society level, in terms of things as basic as research into the problem and the solutions. We should be um, tackling this on an all island basis. That's the only way that it makes sense to try to tackle this problem and the problem, linked problem of biodiversity.
0: Perfect. Thank you Professor. Uh, William?
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and can thank you for your presentation. In relation to the Climate Change Committee, they have made recommendations for four regions of the UK. Uh, they made recommendations for Northern Ireland to reduce emissions by 82 per cent by 2050. In doing that, it ensured that the whole of the UK reached net zero by 2050. Uh, what is your view on that? Uh, would, you, would you agree with the Climate Change Committee?
10: so so, uh, so yeah I, I would I would have no reason to reason to disagree with the climate change committee in their in their in their UK wide um, basis of reaching net zero of course as I said earlier that's a great yardstick for 2045 2050 if we want to think about a livable climate for future generations then UK and Ireland, probably need to aspire to be net net negative in the longer term, um, but net zero is hard enough. Um, and yes, uh, you, can't, you can't, not everyone is going to pull equally, not all sectors can act as quickly, um, and there are, so yes, differentiated targets uh, are a reasonable basis.
9: Thank you. Thank
0: you. And and uh, Professor, you, you, you also mentioned that uh, in your briefing note that the proposed legislation is largely silent on adaptation and needs strengthened on the issue of uh, the just transition. Um, Could you elaborate on how you think this proposed legislation could be strengthened to uh, address the issue of climate adaptation and just transition?
10: The climate commissioner should have have a a, a designated authority to advise on climate adaptation. Um, But even if we are wildly successful both nationally in the UK and in Ireland, and even globally in reducing emissions, we're going to see further warming. That further warming will mean more extreme weather um, of the type that we have seen in recent years. And our infrastructure is not set up for it, on a kind of fundamental level. And that race is that's from the level of individual homeowners through uh, large-scale building infrastructure, through the built built environment, or generally transport, etc. We need to we need to plan and be climate smart and climate resilient. And that means we need to look again at our infrastructure and our investment in infrastructure. There is no point in building a hospital today for today's climate if we know that climate is going to change. It is a false saving to build today's climate if if the building is intended to last till 2100 and we know it's going to be half a degree warmer in summer and we're going to need to retrofit expensively down the line. So it's about embedding climate decision-making into all aspects of policy and it's not just chasing greenhouse gas reductions and adaptation is perennially the poor poor cousin of climate change policy. We're chasing very, very hard greenhouse gas reductions, quite rightly so, but we're not recognizing that we need to plan for both the fact that the climate has already changed, but also more importantly, that it will continue to change.
0: Thank you. Uh, Rosemary?
8: Thank you and thank you for your presentation. Um, just one question. In your climate action plan, you refer to does net zero carbon mean net zero carbon dioxide or net zero GHG emissions? And you talk about the distinction is important. Can you elaborate on that, please?
10: So, so um, as, as I think you heard uh, from, from the last set of uh, witnesses, no all greenhouse gases are equal. Yeah. Um, so, their the, the greenhouse warming potential, either a GWP 100, their 100-year 100 effective uh, radiative forcing, or GWP star, their more immediate forcing, does differ. And um, if we're just talking about net carbon being carbon dioxide and we're not bothering about methane, not bothering about N2O, not bothering about the halogenated gases, the synthetic gases, reaching net zero carbon dioxide will not lead to a net zero climate impact if we're allowing methane, N2O, CFCs, etc., to continue to increase. So it the climate system cares about the radiative imbalance. It doesn't care whether that radiative imbalance fundamentally arises from carbon dioxide molecule, a methane molecule, a nitrous oxide molecule, or any, or anything else. If we're going to stabilize the climate system, we need to fundamentally get to a net greenhouse gas at zero. That buys the stabilization if we want to actually start to move climate back towards what it was, we need to start removing greenhouse gases, and that's where you get into net negative.
8: Yeah. OK, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. OK, then, uh, Professor Thornwell, thank you very much for attending here this afternoon. Uh, your your, your uh, briefing was very helpful and um, informative, both your written and your oral contributions. So I want to thank you very much for that there and um, um, we will hopefully hear from you again. Thank you, Professor Thorne. Um, okay, thank you. Members, we're going to move now round now to the next item on the agenda, which is item 12, and we're going to have an oral evidence session fra- on the Climate Change Bill from Dr Andrew Jackson. I want to refer to the briefing paper from Dr Jackson, J- Jackson which has been tabled. I want to welcome Dr Jackson uh, by um, Starleaf and invite them to take up to 10 minutes to brief the committee and then uh, members will uh, ask some questions. So you're very welcome Dr Jackson.
11: Many thanks. So in the interest of time what I propose to do is not to deliver my full opening statement which you have in writing but I'll deliver part of that and I'll give an indication of the, the parts I'm not covering and maybe I'll try to work in that material in response uh, to any questions you may have so thank you Ed, chair and thank you committee for um inviting me today i'm an assistant professor of environmental law at ucd in dublin and a practicing solicitor with qualifications in law and environmental science i've published recently in the fields of climate law and biodiversity law including a chapter on the history of irish climate law that appears in a recent edited book on national climate acts my previous roles include working for the UK Government's Department for Environment, DEFRA, in London, where I provided legal advice, drafted legislation, and defended litigation. I've litigated cases for many years before the Irish, English, and EU courts. Recently, I acted for Friends of the Irish Environment in a case known as Climate Case Ireland, in which the Supreme Court of Ireland in July 2020 quashed the Irish Government's National Mitigation Plan 2017. The perspectives I offer on the Climate Change Bill are therefore as an academic as a former drafter of legislation and as a litigator. By way of context to the committee's scrutiny of the bill, it's important first to consider what the international scientific consensus tells us about climate change and biodiversity loss. Because as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and its biodiversity equivalent, the Intergovernmental uh, Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services concluded in a joint report published last month neither biodiversity loss nor climate change will be successfully resolved unless both are tackled together. In this regard, it's important to emphasize that the summaries for policymakers of IPCC and IPBES reports are explicitly agreed line by line by the governments that form part of those bodies, including the UK government. This gives these reports a special status. They represent the international scientific consensus that has been explicitly endorsed by governments, including the UK's. In the summary for policymakers of its 2019 Global Assessment Report, IPBES states goals for conserving and sustainably using nature and achieving sustainability cannot be met by current trajectories and goals for 2030 and beyond may only be achieved through transformative changes across economic, social, political and technological factors. Transformative changes defined by IPBES as a fundamental system-wide reorganization across technological economic, and social factors, including paradigms, goals, and values. In other words, amongst the questions properly before the committee in the scrutiny of any climate bill such as this must be, will the bill help to achieve transformative change in this sense? Because anything less will not do, according to IBS and the UK government. In turn, in the summary for policymakers of its 2018 special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius, the IPCC stated, In model pathways with no or limited overshoot of 1.5 degrees, global net anthropogenic CO2 emissions decline by about 45% from 2010 levels by 2030, reaching net zero around 2050. Model pathways that limit global warming to 1.5 degrees with no or limited overshoot involve deep reductions in emissions of methane and black carbon, 35% or more of both by 2050 relative to 2010. Importantly, these are global averages. Developed country parties to the Paris Agreement, such as the UK, are explicitly required to take the lead, i.e. to do more than the global average, and to adopt measures that represent the party's highest possible ambition. As things stand, according to the IPCC, the world had in 2018 a remaining forever carbon budget of 420 gigatons of CO2 for a 66% probability of limiting heating to 1.5 degrees and the remaining budget is being depleted by current emissions of about 42 gigatons of CO2 per year. In other words, as at 2018, we had just 10 years left of current global emissions before the forever carbon budget for 1.5 degrees is entirely used up. Very significantly, as well as being global averages, these IPCC figures assume the deployment post 2050 of massive scale CO2 removal or negative emissions technologies that are subject to multiple feasibility and sustainability constraints according to the IPCC. In other words, the IPCC does not say that it is possible to achieve negative emissions at the required scale, or even that the necessary technologies exist, but rather produces its emission reduction trajectories on the assumption that negative emissions of a particular magnitude will be required and achieved. However, the world currently has no plan for this, And it would, in my view, be deeply unjust for us to bestow this legacy on our children in order that we can continue to emit excessive greenhouse gases today. This would be the very essence of so-called predatory delay. As Professor Kevin Anderson and colleagues noted in a recent peer-reviewed paper in climate policy, if instead the mitigation agenda of developed country parties is determined without reliance on highly speculative planetary-scale negative emissions technologies, and with genuine regard for equity and common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities, the necessary rates of mitigation increase markedly. In the case of the UK, the carbon budgets underpinning mitigation policy are halved, the immediate mitigation rate is increased to over 10% per annum, and the time to deliver a fully decarbonised energy system is brought forward to 2035 to 2040. The UK's current emissions pathway therefore implies the carbon budget of at least a factor of two greater than its fair contribution to delivering on the Paris Agreement's uh, commitment. It's important to note that Professor Anderson's date of 2035 to 2040 for total decarbonisation is based on a global carbon budget that gives only a 33% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees. A better chance implies an even smaller budget, even steeper mitigation, and even earlier decarbonisation. Thus, in addition to asking whether the Climate Change Bill will help to achieve transformative change, in my view, the committee faces a second vital question. Does the Climate Change Bill represent Northern Ireland's highest possible ambition, ignoring highly speculative negative emissions technologies? Because again, anything less will not do. Regarding the bill itself, then. The first thing I would say is, is that it's a very welcome development to see a domestic framework climate law proposed in Northern Ireland. It's very positive too, I think, that the bill seeks to plan not only for greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but also for water quality, soil quality, and biodiversity, recognizing that action on climate change requires action on these matters too. To further reflect this fact, to my mind, it would be good to see the declaration in section one of the bill extended to refer to the climate and biodiversity emergency. In other words, not just the climate emergency, but climate and biodiversity. Now, the remainder of my opening statement uh, in writing, which I I understand will be made available on your website in due course, covers some issues uh, that I saw were discussed uh, in previous sessions, including uh, the net zero target and what the appropriate target should be for for Northern Ireland in the bill. Uh, Leading on from that, I also consider the fact that um, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland may end up uh, having different targets for 2050 and what that may mean and and what ought maybe to be done about that. And then I consider some uh, specific points about the bill Uh, including whether uh, it would be a good idea to include within the bill an interim target or targets en route to total decarbonisation by 2045. I look at climate justice and just just transition and how those principles might be more fully enshrined within the bill. I consider uh, reporting obligations and make a suggestion that perhaps the proposed climate commissioner could be tasked with reporting very regularly on whether Northern Ireland's current plans, in other words, its ultimate decarbonisation year, uh, the ambition in its climate action plan, and so on, still represent the country's highest possible ambition. And I recommend that that uh, be done monthly. And I might just make the point here, I've said, while some might consider this excessive, we know from government's responses to COVID-19 what an emergency response looks like. It means daily briefings by public health experts, amongst other things. Given that the climate and biodiversity emergency represents an unprecedented public health emergency and indeed an existential threat to our civilization for which there is no vaccine, monthly reporting on Northern Ireland's climate ambition would, in my view, be not only appropriate, but necessary. I conclude by making some suggestions as to how legal accountability generally might be beefed up in the climate change bill. And in ultimate conclusion, I say to stand a chance of limiting heating to 1.5 degrees, Northern Ireland's emissions need to fall very deeply, very rapidly, starting immediately. The Assembly, therefore, has just one shot at getting this legislation right. We know that robust framework climate laws enable effective action, and we know how such laws are designed. I wish the committee every success in its work. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Um, Ferd. Introduction, Dr. Jackson, and uh, for your written briefing as well. Um, Philip, do you want
5: to go in there? Yep. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your presentation. Uh, I mean, just a couple of points, very, very quickly. I mean, you, you you've referenced probably, or, or in your view, the need maybe to include uh, the biodiversity crisis in greater detail. I think that was something that uh, Professor Thorne had mentioned in his presentation. Uh, earlier on, uh, personally, I, I think that's welcome. I mean, y- your views on the just transition and, and climate justice. Uh, I mean, m- my party supports uh, a just transition and, and, and climate justice and a just transition uh, committee. Uh, and it, you know, it was part of the discussion. I know with some of the the bill architects that, that they felt that you know it, it, this bill did contain the principles. No, i left lifted from the scottish act in terms of just transition although it doesn't mention specifically so you, you're saying that that it needs to go further than currently exists to do justice to a just transition uh and and specifically mention that uh and then just f- finally in terms of the interim targets uh i mean i know you've made some suggestions maybe there you could elaborate on the importance of that much where you would set those targets in, in what year and then maybe just again Emphasise the, the the point about you know this you know with our previous this being an island and and, and it is I mean you're you're suggesting that the south nearly needs to go more ambitious uh, and and head for the 2045, so that we have some kind of all Ireland cooperation rather than us go the other way. Is that, I mean I hope I'm picking you up right on those points. Yeah, th-
11: thanks. Uh, thanks very much for the question. I'll, I'll take them in turn. So first on climate justice and, and just transition. Um, yes, I'm, su- I'm suggesting exactly what what you said, which is that the bill I think needs to go uh, a little bit further, and I think the Scottish Act is a very good exemplar. And, and, I, and I suppose I say that as a as a lawyer, not not as a Scottish person, if you know what I mean. Not not simply endorsing it because it's Scottish. Um, what, I say, what I said about that. Um, in my written evidence was this. Uh, The term climate justice does not currently appear in the bill. An appropriate body could, for example, be required to report on how and the extent to which the principle to be defined in the bill, and then I refer to the provision of Scotland's act that defines uh, climate justice, has been taken into account in setting and reviewing the net zero target date, any interim targets that might be included, carbon budgets, nitrogen budgets, climate action plans, and so on. And then similarly, there's no reference in the bill to the concept of a just transition. Although the bill does contain just transition related concepts um, in in Section 3, amongst other places. But if you contrast that with Scotland's Act, the Scottish Act sets out detailed just transition principles in Section 35C, and then requires the Scottish Government to explain the extent to which its climate plans take account of these principles the sustainable development goals and i think for for me the scottish act is one of the best examples internationally of of a well-designed piece of national framework climate legislation and you know that's that's borne out on the ground if you look at scotland's performance in terms of reducing um emissions
5: so i think it would be
11: important to build um, explicitly into the fabric of the of the bill in Northern Ireland. What do we mean by climate justice? What do we mean by by just transition? And to impose specific obligations on institutions in Northern Ireland to take account of those things in developing plans, thinking about what tar- how targets ought to change and so on.
5: And, and sorry to did did interrupt you before you asked the, answer the final point. I mean I don't know if you heard our previous discussion with the, the UFU Uh, But, you know, if if the principles were inserted into the bill, uh, as you're suggesting, you know, would that some way go uh, or would would that address some of the concerns of specific sectors in terms of how targets might impact their industry in terms of workers or or revenue, etc.? Well,
11: I I didn't hear your previous uh, discussion, but... If we go to, let me just go to the Scottish Act. Um, the just transition principles. um, Which are the importance of taking action to reduce Scottish emissions in a way which supports environmentally and socially sustainable jobs, supports low carbon investment and infrastructure, develops and maintains social consensus through engagement with workers, trade unions, communities, NGOs, representatives of the interests of business and industry and such other persons as Scottish ministers consider appropriate, creates decent, fair and high-value work in a way which does not negatively affect the current workforce and overall economy, contributes to resource-efficient and sustainable economic approaches which help to address inequality and poverty. So, I don't think the Just Transition principles would put a a break on, on transformative change, the transformative change that's needed but what they, what they do in, in the way that, legally, they have been um, woven into the fabric of the Scottish Act is they ensure, when the Scottish government is acting, those very important matters are front and center of their minds. So I, I, I think that's how I would answer your question.
0: Yeah, thank you, that's brilliant. OK, do you that There? there.
4: Hi Chair, can you checking, hear yeah, me now? Yeah,
0: we got you. Yeah.
4: Great, thanks. And thank you very much um, for that presentation. Thanks for speaking with us today. Um, and thanks for all your work to date so far as well. I do follow a lot of the stuff that, that you produce, and it wouldn't be for the first time that I've been jealous of Scotland and how far they are ahead on many issues. But I maybe want to ask you about um, the importance of political will when it comes to establishing whether or not targets are credible. And um, know that you're using the Scottish Bill as a, a Scottish Act as, as a as a good example. Um, and I'm just sort of that's why the question's coming into my head, you know, was there a political consensus? And if there is the political will to achieve a target, is it more important that the political system builds the pathways to achieving that? or whether we um, just focus on debatable science within sectors?
11: It's a a very good question, thank you. I'm not sure I'm best placed to answer it, uh, to be honest, Um, in the sense that, and maybe a way to explain it is to say, when we took the case uh, against the Irish government in the Supreme Court, what we always had to be very careful um, uh, to emphasize was that we weren't trying to prescribe any particular policy outcome. We were simply making an argument that this is what the science says. Here is the link that we say exists between the agreed science and human rights. And it, and, and that then passes to um, to government and to parliament to uh, take the necessary political decisions making the trade-offs between sectors that are a matter for the political sphere but i mean absolutely i think it's it's very important that political consensus is developed both within the legislature but also very importantly within the broader community and that's a one of the discussions we had around ireland's proposed climate bill was how do you beef up public participation in the development of of plans and so on? And that would be highly relevant if you follow the current model of your bill, which sees the climate action plans setting the targets. um, You know, that might be an interesting area to explore. I know you have public participation obligations already built into the the bill, but building that consensus around okay, this is what the science says, this is how urgent and serious it is that we take action. Um, and that's a process that has worked well in the Republic of Ireland via the citizens' assembly process, you know, this, this process of selecting 100 um, individuals sort of randomly selected to be broadly representative of life who then consider some of the most important issues facing our society, one of which was climate change, they hear expert evidence, they then make reports to uh, to a committee like your own, and that then in turn produced a report to government. But that has been a, a model that has worked well in Ireland, and it's is precisely doing what you're saying is necessary, is trying to build uh, the political consensus for the necessary action. But I suppose I don't see, what I see my role as a, as a, as a lawyer, it's embedded in the climate science is to say, well, this is what the science says is necessary. I say that that links to legal obligations, such as rights obligations. Um, I do not say how this should be received, um, and what trade-offs should be made, and what sectors should be brought, and so on. That's not my job. That's someone else's job. OK.
4: OK, okay listen, there was a lot of feedback. So, uh, enough. And thank you. Yeah that has been, uh, been helpful thank you. Thank you,
0: uh, William.
9: Thank you, and thank you for your presentation. In relation to uh, net zero in Northern Ireland, uh, we had a climate change committee set up in the UK to look at the four regions of the UK, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Now, it was much easier for Scotland to reach net zero because of a much smaller livestock sector in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is a very high level of, high uh, level of livestock sector, very intensive. Uh, so they've made a recommendation that Northern Ireland reaches eighty-two percent by twenty-fifty, which in turn means that the UK reaches net zero. We we have an advantage being part of the UK that we we can we by 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 Northern Ireland reaching eighty-two percent by twenty-fifty. It ensures that the UK as a whole reaches net zero. What's your view on that?
11: Well, it's the, the sort of multi-layered, I suppose. My, my first point would be to say, I think net zero by 2050 is in short order going to look um, insufficient for the United Kingdom, uh, for the European Union, uh, and, and so on. Um, so that's the, that would be my starting point. I'd say whatever Northern Ireland's contribution is within the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom's overall target is insufficient for the reasons that I've mentioned. It's, it's predicated on um, n- massive negative emissions for which there is no plan. Uh, on the on the question of the CCC's advice, I would tend towards the analysis of. Northern Ireland environment link, which I know gave evidence before the committee on the 11th of June. In other words, the figure of, uh, of greenhouse gas reductions of at least 82% is a minimum. It's a floor, not a ceiling. And it's a recommendation which can be tightened. And as the CCC noted in its sixth carbon budget report, there's no purely technical reason why net zero is not possible in Northern Ireland. And while the CCC's letter to Minister Poots from April stated, our assessment is that a net zero target covering all greenhouse gases cannot credibly be set for Northern Ireland at this time. I think that statement has to be considered as, as NIEL argued in the context of another statement by the CCC in its 2019 report that a net zero greenhouse gas target is not credible unless policy is ramped up significantly so to say that a net zero target covering all greenhouse gases can't credibly be set for northern ireland sounds to me like a judgment of what is deemed politically feasible rather than what is scientifically or technically achievable and it's hard for me to see how such a judgment fits with the highest possible ambition requirement of the paris agreement and i might make an additional point if i may because that that's an argument made already before the committee um this point hasn't been made i think which is if you consider a separate passage from the ccc's letter to minister poots um which says the reduction of at least 82 percent in all greenhouse gases by 2050 would require northern ireland to reach net zero co2 emissions by 2050 as well as significantly reducing emissions of other greenhouse gases including methane. Uh, with the footnote, in our balanced pathway, methane emissions in Northern Ireland fall by 42% from 2020 to 2050. So this CCC recommendation is broadly comparable to the IPCC advice that I read out as, uh, as, as the, at the start of my opening statement. Um, in other words, on global average, net zero CO2 emissions by 2050 and a reduction of 35% or more in methane by 2050 compared to 2010. Now, as a developed party with amongst the highest per capita emissions in the world, Northern Ireland clearly, I think, should be doing much more than the global average in terms of its fair share contribution. And as I've already indicated, once we exclude speculative CO2 removal technologies, as I think we must, This implies much more rapid mitigation and much earlier decarbonisation than is currently envisaged. And all of that, I say, points towards selecting for the bill as early a decarbonisation date as possible. So if the choice is 2050 or 2045, in my view, clearly 2045 is preferable as a matter of climate science and climate justice. And if we look uh, to other European countries, for example, Austria 2040, Finland 2035, Iceland 2040, Norway 2030 with offsets, Sweden 2045. Um, so I, I would say, as, as, I, as, I, as I opened my remarks by saying, I think the UK's and the EU's current 2050 targets are going to need to be brought forward soon, and perhaps even as soon as after the IPCC's sixth assessment report is published this year.
9: The climate change committee made fairly clear and stark recommendations, given the intensive livestock sector we have in Northern Ireland. They did say, in one paragraph, that under every scenario that they looked at, Northern Ireland could not reach net zero by 2050 in every scenario that they looked at. So, given that, that's why they made the recommendation. They did in doing that. They do, as I say, reach net zero by 2050, um, so you disagree with the Climate Change Committee report? Is that what you say? Yes. Yes. Okay. All the other regions of the UK are happy with it, uh, and are taking it on board. Um, the Republic of Ireland, what what's their recommendations?
11: The Republic of Ireland, of course, is following the European Union target, which is also net zero by uh, 2050. Well, but again, I would make the same criticism of the European Union's um, 2050 target, uh, or 2050 they're target they're year. The,
9: You're the, saying they, uh, they have the same target as the UK then, is that right?
11: The European Union, as a as a whole, as a 2050 net zero, Ireland has, is setting in its uh, climate amendment bill a 20 for a uh, 2050 climate neutrality goal. But one point that is important to emphasise, which I make in my in my written submission, is the the, the 2050 endpoint is just a, is a snapshot. Equally, if not more important, is the pathway that's followed between now and the ultimate decarbonisation year, because of course, uh, what matters is cumulative emissions and the carbon budget over that entire period. If we look at what Ireland is planning to enshrine in its national legislation, it's looking to reduce its emissions by 51% by 2030 compared to the 2018 level. Now, I, I've, I have some concerns with how that provision is drafted in Irish law. But that represents the second most ambitious target globally after Denmark's in terms of action over the next 10 years. So if we're talking about you know, does it make sense for Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic of Ireland to, to, to align targets uh, and so on, it's not simply a matter of comparing, you know, twenty fifty versus twenty forty five or eighty two percent by twenty fifty or whatever. We have to consider what is the, the the pathway that is being recommended, what is the pathway that is likely to be followed, and it's certainly the case that Ireland now, from it, it, to be clear, from a starting point in Ireland in which emissions have risen between nineteen ninety and twenty twenty. Ireland is planning an ambitious emissions reduction over the next decade. In Northern Ireland, I know you've reduced emissions over that period, so the the starting point may be slightly different, but but my broader point is it's not enough just to look at the end point. We need to consider what the pathway and the budget is over
9: the period. I would have thought the end point was the most important point, but that's probably only me. Okay, thank you very much.
0: And uh, a last point from Claire before we
4: move on, Claire. Claire. Yep. Hi. Thanks very much for allowing me back in. There's that really interesting stuff there, and I know that there's a, a commentary around the UK's reliance on what's deemed as highly speculative negative emissions technology, uh, and given the use of carbon capture and storage technology, um, and it's not proven at scale. Um, how would you advise that carbon budgets are designed to ensure that net zero is reached um, regardless of whether or not CCS technology is widely ruled out in the future? Well, I think
11: I, I, I've i cited, uh, and I should say in response to the, to the, the previous question too, I'm not the only one by any means who is critical of net zero by 2050 targets and the reliance on you know, massive speculative future removal from the atmosphere. And if you look at the IPCC reports and the different scenarios and you see the level of CO2 removal that's planned in those scenarios, it's quite extraordinary. And the two sort of Leading ideas are, you know, direct air capture, you know, kind of power plants that actually suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which again is is not something that's being done at scale at the moment. And then as you said, carbon capture and storage, but but the important, there's another addition at the start of that that's important when we talk about negative emissions is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So in other words, we grow, trees forests we plant forests and then we burn those that biomass in power plants and capture the carbon using ccs technology and that's the negative emissions part and i know a lot of the focus both in northern ireland and in the republic of ireland has been on what are the impacts or projected impacts on the agricultural sector of of acting and what um, maybe is not given the same consideration as what are the impacts of not acting. The the less we do to reduce emissions, the more we have to rely on future negative emissions technologies uh, to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Even at the moment, on the basis of the UK government's plans and the Irish government plans, we need to do massive CO2 removal, including massive bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. That means massive land use change, huge quantities of land given over to forestry planting to feed bio energy power plants with carbon capture and storage. Now, we all know that it takes time for forests to establish. Um, I would ask the committee to consider, where is the planning for that to happen at the scale necessary? What would that mean for Northern Ireland, land use change what would it mean for the the rest of the united kingdom in terms of land use change where are these enormous forests going to be planted to feed bioenergy carbon capture and storage plants um and that is uh you know the previous questioner seemed surprised that i disagreed with the ccc um i'm not the only one and maybe you know the committee could ask the ccc to explain in the northern irish context in the uk context and the global context what's the plan now for the scale of negative emissions how can we justifiably base our decisions on emissions reductions now on a punt that places the burden that passes the baton to our kids and says We've had a great time, uh, and by the way, we've planned for you to invent a unicorn, um, and we hope you can do that because you're going to need to do that.
0: Okay, okay, okay. thank you, okay, Claire. Um, okay, Dr. Jackson, uh, I want to thank you very much for your evidence this uh, this afternoon, and it um, was very. Helpful and very informative. And can I seek agreement to publish Dr. Jackson's briefing paper on the committee's web page? Great. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Jackson, and hopefully we'll hear from you again. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care, Dr. Jackson. Bye now. Okay, members. Um, okay, I'm going to go back uh, to resume where there's a number of written briefings which I skipped forward because we um, we held uh, up for some time. And I want to go back to item number six. It's an SL1, the Agriculture Student Fees Amendment Regulations NA 2021. The briefing is at page 27. These will amend the Agriculture Act uh, Student Fees Regulations, which sets the level of fees payable for courses of higher education uh, delivered at Calvary. They were first considered by the committee the on 6 May, and uh, we 6 uh, May 2021. Uh, however, the um, the examiner chapter recommend the definitions of for EU settlement scheme pre-settled status and settled status be, uh, be, uh, be incorporated. Uh, these uh, regulations before us today have since been amended to take account of the comments by the ESR are subject by to a negative resolution with an anticipated date uh, for coming to operation on the 2nd of August. Um, I just want to um, just in light of um, I just I'm reading it in this a in little bit more detail and and mm-hmm. of the uh, the changes to settlement status that came in last night um, I have to say I'm concerned about this here um, and again, it's that's a, a consequence of of us leaving the EU um, that the international students um, basically with this SR that will be updated to include new students who you have not obtained pre-settled or settled status. Their tuition fees uh, will be equivalent to nine thousand pound per academic year, uh, whereas uh, EU students who have the settled status they will have the same fees as other students here, of seventeen hundred eighty-five. Um, now that's I know it doesn't affect a lot of students, but I just I'm just fearful that this this SR this this SR before us Act as a barrier for future students from other parts of the EU uh, coming here to study. And we know the reliance, particularly in the agri-food sector, of um, people coming from other parts of the world to work here, and indeed our vets as well. So it's just something that uh, there, there, probably we can't change it because it's coming as from negative resolution uh, under powers derived from the British Agricultural Act, um, but it's something that I just want to. Highlight is something that I think is uh, regrettable and I'm um, fearful uh, of. Um, members, of any comments on this, SR? No. Oh. Okay. Okay, members. Um, just get me thing here. Okay, my members, are okay to um, note this here. Okay.
7: Okay.
0: okay. Um, item number seven. Um, Animals, uh, re- records, identification, movements, regulations, NA 2021. The Department has not submitted any papers for this, so we will defer it. And Same with the Equine Identification Regulations. Uh, we, the, the Department has not got their um, papers in, so we will defer it as well. Item 9 is the written briefing, the, the, um, depart- the direct payments to farmers, uh, controls and checks cor- coronavirus regulations, NA 2021, uh, written briefing at page 40. The Committee last considered these at the meeting on the 16th of June, and we agreed the policy to move to the next stage. The regulations subject to negative resolution are expected to come into operation on the 15th of July, and the, uh, the Examiner Statute Rules is reported in the Regulations and has not identified any issues to the rule. If members are content, I will put the question that the Committee of Agriculture Environment, and Environmental Affairs has considered SR 2021-181 the Direct Payment to Farmers Controls and Checks Amendment conform- Coronavirus Regulations, NA 2021, and there is no objection to the rules. Okay. Uh, number ten is the written briefing SR 2021-182, the Waste Fees and Charges Amendment Regulations NA 2021. Uh, the briefing is at page 47. We considered this uh, at the meeting on the 24th of June. as we read the policy move to the next stage. The ES, the Examiner's such rules, has identified some queries with these regulations and have been put to departmental colleagues. And I can advise members that the Examiner intends to have a recommendation. On these regulations with the committee at next week's, week's meeting Any members? Uh, okay um where are we at now? okay 13. i want to move on now to item number 13 on your agenda members it's a written briefing uh market surveillance uh uh regulation 2021 written is the table packed uh on the impending introduction of these regulations which are due to take effect on the 16th of july they established a replacement market surveillance scheme from that which was in place under EU law, and they have effect across three local departments, ERA, business and economy. With regard to ERA's functions, the regulations set out the investigation, enforcement and penalty powers the department and its armed next bodies will have in respect of undertaking surveillance of manufactured goods moving to and within the EU single market, so as to ensure that they are compliant with the EU standards. Cunhae has been asked for any comments or questions that should be drawn to the attention of the year, Minister before the regulations come into uh, effect and can, if members have any comments you can raise them now or you can the chair oh, sorry, Rosemary. Sorry, Rosemary yeah
8: go ahead can I ask is therefore this is part of the implementation of the protocol That's in a,
10: relation
0: to this? this am I correct in saying that? this is this is aligning the same safety standards as the EU for
12: Yes, Chair, that is correct. Um, this is one of the statutory instruments being brought forth, Rosemary, um, under the auspices of the trade and cooperation agreement, and therefore the protocol. It is to yeah. ensure there is alignment of the market surveillance regime um, that previously was in effect through EU law. And Who brought it forward, who brought it to us? It is um, it's statutory instrument, okay. so it is being introduced via um, Westminster and the committee is um, being asked for any comments or questions. Um, in advance of it coming into effect on the 16th uh, of July.
0: Um, uh, if you have any comments, you can make them to Nick now, or else you can email in. It's
9: we can email them to Nick now. Yeah, right, I'll take a look at it. Okay. Sure, I'll we'll email them in. Okay, Rosemary. Thank,
0: okay. yeah, thank you. Um, okay, Members. Uh, 14 is the uh, another statutory instrument, the Common uh, Organisation of Markets and Agriculture Products Transitional and Amendment Regulations 2021. And again, the papers have not arrived, so this matter has also been deferred. Um, item number 15 is the uh, a written briefing, the DRA- NAEA Draft Business Plan, 21-22. Again, the, this has been deferred as the papers have not been uh, submitted. And There is a written briefing from the Forest Service Draft Business Plan, 21-22, it's page 64. The plan includes eight key targets and 15 supplementary measures to support those targets Focus on the priority work activity of the agency for 21-22. These are delivery of the 21-22 Forest of a Future programme to plant 600 hectares of woodland as part of the overall goal to plant 18 million trees by 2030, provide at least 400,000 cubic metres of timber from well-managed forest to customers and hold independent certification that the management of deer forest meets sustainable forestry standards, develop a risk-based inspection framework for plant and plant products and develop a draft policy framework for plant health controls, develop a forest management planning system to incorporate assessment of carbon implications in all ecosystem services, achieve an income of at least 11 million from all sources, and secure an employee engagement index of at least sixty percent. If members have any um, questions on this, you can please uh, forward them to Nick by the close of play today. Uh, number eighteen is the marine strategy. Up to the programme measures uh, papers have been submitted, so this matter has also been deferred. Written briefing EU transition, page sixty-eight of your pack. Eighty-eight of your pack. Sorry. Uh, the key points in the briefing are as follows. The UK and the EU have agreed on the management of key shared stocks with fishing until the end of 2021. A full business case outlining options for operations supports ports will be completed by October 21. Therefore, any necessary building work will not be completed by 2023, subject to an executive approval decision. A controlled stop on building works will remain in place while this work progresses. Associated uh, controlled stop on relevant design work has now ended. Has now, has now ended. Okay. Um, members, any questions relating to that there written briefing that you have in your pack on the EU in transition? Can I ask that you forward it to um, Nick by the close of play today? And can I also agreement to publish the written briefing from the Department on the Committee's webpage? Okay. Members, correspondence, uh, page 96. I want to draw your attention to the following correspondence from the Department on the publication of the investigation of the effects of COVID 19 restrictions and air quality report for the first half. Of 2020, members are asked to consider the findings contained in the report and advise the clerk of any issues they wish to raise in the department. Uh, please, uh, you can raise them now, or you can uh, f- uh, send them in to Nick uh, by the uh, by the close of play today. Um, page 196 uh, corresponds to the department advising the tendency to launch a joint consultation on a policy on managing radioactive substances and nuclear decommissioning, which is expected to commence. In the late summer, early autumn, Uh, that is uh, across uh, the uh, Britain and here, and uh, I think it would be important. Could we seek clarity? I propose we seek clarity from the department, uh, because again, radioactive substances uh, uh, knows no boundaries. So I think it'd be worthwhile, if possible, to get some uh, seek engagement on the proposed policy that's been taking place in Midlothian. Okay. Uh, page 200. Correspondence from the Department on the consultation and proposed changes to the Area Best Scheme Review of Decisions Panel. The correspondence advi- correspondence advised that the consultation launched the 22nd of June for an eight-week eight period. The Department will return to the committee with an analysis of consultation responses in force that relates to the independent panels, uh, issue which we have been considering at length. Page 665. Correspondence to the NIH Sheep Scab Control Group regarding the inclusion of scab control in any future models of agree support. Again, can I seek agreement to write to the department to seek clarity on any plans or strategies for the eradication of skip scalabin? Cheap. Is that okay? And are um, members okay? We action the rest of the index, uh, the rest of the correspondence suggestion index page, page ninety three. Okay um, Forward for work programme, uh, page six eighty two, the clerk um, I want to remind members that advise the clerk of their are available to attend a virtual visit. Uh, organised by the Dairy Council on the 8th of July at 1.30 p.m. and Can I seek for agreement in the f- on the remainder of the Forest Work Programme? Okay. Um, in terms of uh, any our business, Patsy has asked here if we could get a formal committee update on the status of the Farm well- well- Welfare Bill. Patsy, are you here? Patsy, oh, Patsy's still there. <laughs> Sorry, Patsy. I've seen it on the group. Sorry, Patsy, do you want to come in there on that, Patsy?
7: All I wanted just is- was Chair, am I, am I coming across clear enough there? Okay, aye?
0: Yes, we, yes, absolutely, that's it.
7: Grant, thank you, Chair, for, for allowing me to bring that. I just wanted to find out what the status of the Farm Welfare Bill um, was. I know we got various evidence and, and various, uh, very informative piece of evidence, uh, both from the Department and from uh, RIAS. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> there were a number of issues uh, raised and the research stuff uh, and I'm wondering did the advocates or the proponents of the Farm Welfare Bill, did they get an opportunity to respond to the issues that were raised in that, you know written uh, uh, opportunity to respond to the many issues that were raised in that um, during the, that formal evidence session?
0: Okay. I have enough to note that. Members, can you okay? we, we, we seek that clarification of the department?
7: Huh? And I mean, from the the the, the research paper, uh, Declan, please or chair, the uh, the research paper. There were a number of issues uh, that were teased out by research that related to this bill. I'm just wondering, did did the proponents of the bill, did they get the opportunity to uh, see those issues and to formally come back and respond to those issues, or were they given that opportunity? Uh-
12: Chair, I uh, will just come in there. Um, Patsy, yes, we did follow up. Um, that was a few weeks ago after Raise had given the briefing yes. on the Farm Welfare Bill. And, um, if memory serves me correctly, there was um, a request in about potential legal advice and other issues raised in that. and We did um, forward those to Rays who who have looked at them. Um, we have not, um, as a committee, gone back to the proponents of the bill. Um, to write to those formally, but that is certainly something that we,
7: we could do through a formal correspondence if that was, if that was desired. I think, Chair, that would be very helpful okay. uh, because they, they did go to a lot of other at their end to bring forward these proposals and it's only fair that they should be given the opportunity to respond to the issues that, that, um, that were raised in, in both sessions of evidence that we got. Please.
0: Okay. um Members of our business want to raise? Not the WhatsApp group here. Um, could I just, with the support of the committee, just go back, seeing the, in relation to June monitoring, I note that there's still there's still, there's still, some money that had been unallocated this week, the 29.7 million capital. Could I propose that we come right back to the department to just revisit that again to see if there any opportunities where we could get a bid for some of that there for investment in rural areas?
9: I suspect that's capital money, so we'd yeah. have to in capital One. That's 29.7 million capital. Okay. Um, I would also want
0: to like advise members that the, the clerk will provide a briefing to the committee next week on the proposed procedural guidance to undertake their scrutiny of the Department's climate change bill if it is referred to this committee after the second stage. Okay, remember, The next meeting will take place on Thursday, the 8th of July, uh, at 10 a.m. and will be a hybrid meeting streamed on the Assembly website and thank you all for your attendance this morning and I'm going to adjourn the meeting. Okay, thank you everybody.
7: Senate Chamber Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme signed.